Oh, and I just realized I forgot to actually script my opening, so this is going to be kind of ummy. Okay. <clears throat> hey, guys. This is Meyer of uh, Superman <laughs> and the Bronx, right? No? Yes? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, <laughs> this week, we're going for covering um, Flash issue 7, Birds of Prey issue 12, and just for fun of it, Mad Magazine issue 1. There's a common thread between those. The first listener to find it will win a million dollars. Go! Yay! Hooray! And, of course, the shipper spotlight. This week's shipper spotlight will be George Washington and um, uh, Bugs Bunny. There you go. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. Superman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Superman of the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we are starting our coverage of, I, I guess I'll call it Movie Month, by having, uh, by covering a team-up between Superman and the amazing Spider-Man. And to help me cover this monumental event, I've brought on two guys who know a lot more about Spider-Man than I ever will. First up is Josh Bertoni. Hello. And also with me today is Donovan Morgan Grant. Hello! And I think this show owes you some, like, gratuity for the amount of times we've used science in the show. <laughs> so we'll probably get back to you on that later. But, um, well, let's start off with Josh. Josh, what kind of, uh, what Spider-Man stuff are you, well, actually, not just Spider-Man. What stuff are, what other shows are you on? Well, um, on the Spider-Man end of things, I do Clone Saga Chronicles with the gentleman um, on the other end of this conversation, Donovan Morgan Grant. Uh, Zach Joyner is the, uh, I guess the the president, uh, editor in chief of that show, and Gerard Delator and assorted others are along for the ride. And uh, also with the other gentleman on the other end of the line, um, we do a show called Spider-Man Crawl Space with uh, a Brady bunch of panelists. Uh, it's 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 an ever-going panel, which has uh, gone through a lot of changes this year, actually. But uh, that's that's a fun show. Brad Douglas heads that up, and we um, and Clone Saga Chronicles. We cover the Clone Saga era. Crawl Space is basically like the CNN of Spider-Man podcasts. It covers all the different new releases and wacky news coming out. And I'm involved in various other projects uh, that are in various states of hiatus or not hiatus or production. Um, I do do a weekly Beatle show called Bertoni Beetle Bonanza, which uh, missed two weeks, but. Uh, Got like 13 outs uh, on time beforehand, so yay for that. Woohoo! <laughs> and Don, your turn. Well, um, as uh, as Josh mentioned, I am his co host on Coincide Chronicles. Um, I am also his co host on Spider Man Crawl Space. Um, I was formerly co host with him and John Wilson on the Meet Spider Man Classics. Um, and I think that's it with me and Josh. I, I've had enough of him, so. Uh, I also do uh, the Batman Universe Comic Cast, uh, which is a bi-weekly uh, podcast that covers the Batman books, the current Batman books monthly, um, with um, Dustin, the, the the ringleader over there, and a sort of uh, other co-panelists. And I've recently, I say recently, uh, six months ago, I started up my own show 
along with my co-host Jesse Garrett, covering uh, the anime manga uh, phenomenon called Dragon Ball Z. Uh, it's called The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast, which airs once a month, every month, randomly, but every month nonetheless. And I think that's all. I hope that is, because I don't want to take up much more time. <laughs> all right. Well, if not, I'm sure we'll be able to fix that later. And uh, all right. Well, since it's your guys' first time on the show, uh why don't we get a quick a quick rundown of your comic book history and whether or not you actually have any ties with the Superman stuff. We'll let Josh go first. Comic book history has been um since I was 11 years old I was collecting comics. I got into it because I grew up in the um Fox Kids Kids WB era of all those superhero cartoons like uh Batman the animated series, the Superman animated series, uh Spider-Man, and uh, I didn't really watch that much of X-Men, but but it was on there. Like, the, the comic book culture was definitely very, very prevalent, you know, in, in my youth. Um, and even with all the movies and stuff that's out now, I think it was much more prevalent to us, because we were getting on a more regular basis than, they, than the kids today are. Because, I, well, we didn't have cable, so it was mostly the network cartoons. Now, it's I guess it's more about Spongebob or Phineas and Ferb and stuff. And um, we weren't allowed to own video games as children, and uh, like I said, we didn't have cable TV at first, so a lot I did a lot of reading of comics in my spare time, and uh, was since I was 11, and it's it's grown ever since then, and podcasting has been a great outlet for the hobby, and it's it's probably kept me more connected to the hobby than I would be otherwise, because I've lost interest at various points in my life since then, but you know, the the sense of community kind of keeps me in, and, you know, going to stuff like San Diego with other people, that's certainly fun. Uh, Superman, I've collected runs of his stuff at various stages, and, like, there's different eras I enjoy. I mean, um, he's just one of those characters that you're always aware of. I mean, I watched the show um, when I was younger, but, I mean, I always enjoyed Spider-Man and Batman more. Um, you know, when I, I read The Death and Return and Trade, um, a few years after it came out, because I was too young to experience it the first time. And, but I, I do remember reading Electric Blue, that storyline, like, when it when it was new. I remember that, and I remember, like, the fan outcry of that in the early versions of the internet. That <laughs> was ruined forever, ever, ever, ever. Uh, and I, I, I watched Smallville and was a very big fan of it, like, almost all the way through, you know, uh, episodes that really really were bad like fortune notwithstanding <laughs> you know and uh i guess a few years ago I, I did a few superman projects for um there was a comic book community called scans daily on live journal and i thought it would be fun to look at the lois lane silver age series and like track her different weddings engagements dead husbands and like estranged husbands and put them in like you know these little charts and I went through her whole series doing that, and I had an absolute blast. I, I really enjoy Silver Age Superman. That might be one of my favorite eras. And I think I said on Facebook once that, like, they they need to do, like, what they did with Batman Brave and the Bold, but for, like, a straight-up adaptations of those Silver Age Superman stories, play them completely straight. It would be the, it would be the best comedy superhero show ever. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, I guess it's my turn. <laughs> or is it your turn? Sorry. No, you go. Okay. Um, well, my uh, my horrible orange story begins in Superman Annual Twenty Five. Uh, no, it doesn't. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, since I, before I can even remember, I've been a Batman fan. 
Um, it's a combination of the animated series and uh, reruns of the 60s show. So uh, even from, you know, straight from birth, I suppose, I've had two, um, two ideas of Batman in my head and kind of running concurrently. Um, so I never really knew much of a difference between Adam West and Kevin Conroy until I was much older. And, but I, I, actually, I literally uh, didn't notice a difference between the original Dick Grayson Robin costume and Tim Drake's new costume. So I was a bit thick as a kid. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, when the Spider-Man show different. came out, <laughs> um, I got interested in him around 1994. And I became a huge fan ever since then at the age of five. And um, Spider-Man and Batman are my main guys, although I've always had an affinity for Superman. He's sort of like an unofficial third place because I've watched all the shows. I've always enjoyed him. I never, I was never very critical of him because he was just a fun character. He still is a fun character. And um, as I got older, I got, I got into other characters like Green Arrow and Daredevil and The Punisher. But um, Spider-Man and Batman are the, are the guys I always come back to. Um, as I'm sitting right now in my in my uh, in my room in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, in my I've, I'm surrounded by uh, two sides of my huge collection, mainly Batman on on the right side and Spider-Man on the left side. And assorted others like Daredevil and uh, Superman uh, peppered throughout. But uh, those guys are the ones that come in first, and they got me in the game. I've, I've been horribly addicted ever since. Sweet. And I won't hold it against you that you like Batman better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'd, I'd be really, really awkward if I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we'd just say, okay, well, it was nice having you guys on the show. We'll talk to you. No, I'm just um, okay, um, so I guess real quick, since you guys are on here to help, since you guys are so knowledgeable in your Spider-Man-ness, what are your favorite Spider-Man sh- uh, not shows? What are your favorite Spider-Man stories? That's a good question. You want to go first, Josh? I, I guess so. That that seems to be our uh, yeah. That's our pattern. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, I really like um, the original Clone Saga, which is ironically done by the creative team that we're about to read. Uh, the you know the Conway Andrew Clone Saga, just because. First of all, I think that Conway was a kid when he wrote it. I mean, I, I, not I think he was a kid. I know he was a kid when he wrote it. And basically, I don't think he had in mind all like what I read from it. That when, when he wrote it, I think it was just like a story he was planning month to month because of an editorial mandate to, me, to bring Gwen Stacy back. But there's a lot of things I like about that story and just the fact that thematically it's become, at least the way that I read it, and again, not the way it was intended, a story about Peter finally putting, you know, Gwen's death behind him two years later and moving on with Mary Jane and the memory of Gwen and having to put her behind him, that kind of manifests in the form of her clone. And of course there's the wacky stuff in there, which like on yelling at the scorpion that you can do without, but it's fun. Um, I also like the way Roger Stern wrapped up the hobgoblin saga in the nineties, because he was able to tie everything together that other people had written that was like in complete contradiction and make it all look like it had been originally planned. And the original trade paperback for that, it's not the new one that came out because it cuts out some of the extra features, but the original trade paperback is one of the best trade paperbacks ever. It's like, it's a diff- it's, it's why you need to get a trade paperback instead of the individual issues. It's like, it's like DVD extra features, you know, you get author commentary and you get a timeline of each of the issues as, when they originally occurred, complete with author notes about what was going on behind the scenes. And then, and, and then there's, like, pictures um, in the back. Like, if they talk about Jonas Harrow on page four, you turn to the back, and it says, page four, Jonas Harrow first appeared in this Roger Stern issue. And then you see a picture of him. And actually, Jonas Harrow first appeared in Stan Lee's run, but that's besides the point. But, yeah, <laughs> they write stuff like that. It's it's really cool, and I love how they tied that together. So I guess those would be uh, in my top two. 
Um, on my end, uh, it's a good question. I love uh, I love Jerry Conway's original run on Amazing. I love Stan's run because it's classic. Uh, but it's so much fun to read Stan's run and then lead into uh, uh, Conway and Romita Senior's run because it's like it was like Stan's character is getting older, and the lead up to the death of Gwen Stacy, and after that, um, it's just classic, classic stuff. Um, my I I adore uh, the run. Between 2000 and 2004, with uh, JMS, J. Michael Straczynski on Amazing, and Paul Jenkins on um, uh, Peter Parker Spider Man. To me, that is the quintessential run. I know, I know it, it's typical for people when they're of a certain age to hold a certain run uh, to close and dear to their heart because they are of a certain age. But to me, that's like I can always go back to those stories and recognize that they're not perfect, but still love them all the same and never really get away from that. You had John Romita, Sen- uh, John Romita Jr. doing the art for Amazing and Paul, uh, uh, Mark Buckingham on Peter Parker. And just the, the way Peter was written just felt like it was the same character all those decades ago, just, just growing into a, a, a more mature character now. Um, I also love the 90s with uh, Venom and Carnage. I, 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 I regret nothing. Venom and Carnage are awesome to me. Uh, Michelini writing uh, Mark Bagley, who's my favorite Spider-Man artist. He's great. So uh, I, I like I like uh, aspects of all the decades, but those are my like you know those are my essential Spider-Man. If I were writing a, a trade paperback, sweet. Okay, cool. Well, as you can see, everybody they have differing opinions. So this should make this in- this story very interesting, considering this is the older, more classic stuff. We're this close to punching each other, so. Well, yeah, it's still, it's not that different. <laughs> so. <laughs> Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 monster chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters. Hundreds of enemies and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless. You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. Hey, this is Bane. Listen to this promo for the BatmanUniverse.net or I'll break you. The BatmanUniverse.net, your source for all things related to the Dark Knight, including the latest news related to the comics, movies, TV, merchandise, video games, and much more. Each month, an assortment of podcasts are produced, including a bi-monthly comic podcast, special commentaries and interviews, the Batman Universe specials, and a podcast which delves into TV, movie, merchandise, video game news, and beyond. Keep up to date with everything about Batman, get to know the kooky and lovable casts of the podcasts, listen to in-depth conversations about the latest direct-to-video movies, and increase your knowledge about the Dark Knight and his family, only at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'm Dustin from the BatmanUniverse.net, and I approve this message. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. All right, well, first up, 
we have the spectacular cover. Well, I'm sorry, maybe it's more of an amazing cover. Uh, by Now, the cover credits for this issue are Ross Andrew on penciler, pencils, Dick Giordano on inks, and possibly Jerry, I can't say his last name, so I'm going to go with Serp or Serp or something, on colors. However, with a little investigating, I have discovered that the Superman figure was touched up by Neil Adams, and the background inks were done by Terry Austin. Mm. Um, do you guys have anything you want to comment about the cover? Looking at it now, I can see Adam's uh, hand in this, especially the Superman. Mm-hmm. And just, just the way he, he does the anatomy, I'm like, I always thought uh, that's a really good um, that's a really good cover, but it does, because it's not, it's not overtly Adam's, but it is like, you know, around this time, obviously, he was, he's starting to work in DC heavily, and so when I can see that, and the very few images of Spider-Man I can see, I can definitely kind of tell now that you mentioned it, because I don't think I knew that beforehand. So yeah, it's it's with with a trained eye that that us nerds have, you can you can distinguish it. <laughs> exactly, Josh, you got anything? Just it's an iconic cover, you know. Um, looks like they're about to punch each other out, but I think it's um I can't recall any homages right now, but I know that I've seen this homage uh, at least in a few different places. Oh yeah, definitely. And- Definitely more than the other team up covers because I, I I really can't recall any like super iconic Marvel DC team up covers off the top of my head. Exactly, and I got to tell you, if I was going through a comic shop, of course this was tabloid size, so that would all automatically draw attention to it. But if I was even at a newsstand and I saw this cover, I think I'd probably pretty much go nuts. <laughs> I would rob you've, the place. <laughs> yeah, you've got some pretty awesome art. Common. This is probably some of the best art from both companies at this point, um, and it's you know two of the biggest heroes in comics at at this point. So that I thought it was a pretty cool cover. Now, from what I've um, unearthed, it appears that throughout the comic, as I go into the credits, um, well, it was written by Jerry Conway, as we mentioned, drawn mostly by Ross Andrew. However, from what I found out. Uh, John Romita came through and took care of re- so. yeah, redrawing some of the Marvel faces, specifically the Peter faces, it appears. Yes, yes. But, uh, I, I wasn't, I, oh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, which is pretty obvious, um, as you can tell by Don's reaction. Um, now, they say some Marvel faces, so I'm guessing some of the others may have been touched up, too. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with his art as I am with some of the DC stuff, so I don't know if... He looks kind of like his Mary Jane, for the most part, but I don't know about any of the others. Um, and then, as far as the Superman stuff, Neil Adams actually went through and did a lot of the redrawing of the Superman figures on a lot of the pages... Specifically, apparently, Ross Andrew has a problem with uh, perspective, I think. And so he went in and did some touch-ups. Now, it doesn't say he did any any touch-ups on Spider-Man, but I would uh, bet that if he didn't, Romita did. So I'm sure someone went through and fixed some of that. And as I said, Dick Giordano is the inker, but of course, background assists were done by Terry Austin. And also, he had some assists by... Joseph Rubenstein and Bob Wyacek. Okay. Uh, the letters were all down, done by Gaspar Saladino, which, according to what I found, he did all of it. Uh, the colors were by Jerry Serp, uh, which apparently he did all of it. Uh, now, as far as editing, 
Uh, Carmine Infantino and Stan Lee are credited with most of the editing, but were also assisted by Roy Thomas, Julie Schwartz, Marv Wolfman, E. Nelson Bridwell, and I've also found out uh, Lynn Ween could also be added to that list. And so I believe just about anyone that isn't Julie Schwartz or E. Nelson Bridwell didn't Roy Thomas, Marv Wolfman, and Lynn Ween all serve as uh, editors or main editors at at Marvel at some point? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, after Stan uh, was completely out of the writing game, uh, the last book he wrote was Spider Man. Uh, I know Ross, uh, Roy Thomas. I believe I know he I know he picked up for a few issues after Stan, and then Stan came back for a few brief issues. Then it was Conway, but I believe Roy Thomas was the second editor in chief. Um, I'm not sure when when Wolf. I'm not sure when Wolfman came on. Maybe afterwards. And I know Ween came on around that time. But uh, I know Roy Thomas was the second editor in chief at Marvel after Stan. Okay. At one point, most of the writers of Amazing Spider-Man became editors in chief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> but um, so that is that's our cover credits, and we and of course that those credits are all put on a big splash page featuring Superman flying up towards Spider-Man, who is using his web, I guess you call it web grip, to hang on to the side of a building as they look like they're about to fight each other. And this is called The Battle of the Century. And because it's such a big deal, they've given us three prologues before we actually get to the big chapter, or before we get to the big story. So, what we're going to do is we're going to break up into prologues and chapters with each of us covering one apiece and then coming around again because there's enough chapters for that. So first up is prologue number one featuring Superman. And we start off in winter in Metropolis. And while some people have left town to go to warmer climates, Superman is still in town dealing with a giant robot who happens to be smashing its way through the city. As Superman flies up to the robot, it knocks him into a building. And after he catches the debris, Superman tries using... Uh, his infrared vision to upset its internal circuitry, but the robot hints, hints, oh hits, I can't type. But the robot hits him with an inertia ray, sending him flying away out of control. At this point, the robot tears the roof off of the Metropolis Star Labs building and uses a pincer-like hand to grab a small device from a computer console, and then appears to eat it. By this point, Superman has recovered and has returned to the battle, attempting to attack from below, but this fails because the robot. Um, crushes him with gravity ten times that of Krypton. Realizing that the robot must be using some type of gravity device for balance, Superman just flies up into the air and literally pushes the robot into the ground. At this point, the robot's head launches into the sky. So Superman takes off after it and explodes in his face, while Lex Luthor exits the body of the robot and uses a jetpack to fly away. <laughs> uh, seemingly preventing super, somehow oh, Superman yes. from... Exactly. <laughs> Next time. Um, but uses a jetpack to fly away. I don't know how Superman couldn't trace that, but yeah, no, me too. <laughs> whatever. Uh, annoyed and lacking any leads, Superman heads back to the WGBS building, switches to Clark Kent, and heads inside. Outside of the news studio, Clark meets up with Lois Lane and Steve Lombard. Steve has set up the old pale over the door gag and has Clark go in first, but Clark spots it with his X-ray vision. As he enters the studio, he directs his super breath to keep the pail in the air. When he sees that it doesn't work, Steve enters, only to have the pail fall and dump the water on his head before it, too, lands on his head. At this point, their boss, Morgan Edge, chastises him for his jokes while he's in... Oh, and that's the end of the sentence. While he's in... 
The, okay, I got... Try that again. While he's in the middle of telling them about a big deal he hopes to finalize when they go to the World News Conference in New York, Jimmy interrupts and shows them that another network is reporting about the giant robot attack. While Edge now chastises Clark for not getting that story, Clark realizes how much of an idiot he's been. As he, le- <laughs> As he leaves and switches back to Superman, our hero realizes that the robot left a path of destruction which he could have trailed back to its source, which appears to be an undersea lab in Metropolis Bay, which is really, really deep. As he approaches, an arm reaches out from the lab and pulls the Superman inside, where he comes face-to-face with Luther. Luther activates a web of lasers powerful enough to destroy even the Man of Steel, but Superman quickly figures out the pattern and escapes, just as he's hit in the eyes by a beam of, la- of by some kind of a beam from Luther's power glove, which, due to its red solar radiation, temporarily blinds the Man of Steel. While Superman is dazed, Luther grabs the programming circuit he stole from Star Labs earlier and sends it away in a pneumatic tube to an alternate hideout. By this point, Superman has recovered enough to use his heat vision to blast a hole in the wall, sending a rush of water inside. In the confusion, Superman is able to grab Lex, and they head off to prison. That night, Clark joins the rest of his colleagues at Metropolis Airport for the flight to New York. And then at this point, we pause for some hero identification, and we get a a quick review of Superman's origins. He rocketed to Earth from Krypton, where Earth's yellow sun and the lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers, which he uses to fight a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the Terran way. And I looked that word up, and I'm I'm still not sure what it means. Terran, like Earth. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he, like, Instead of just limiting it to the American way, they're covering the whole planet. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Someone got offended in the first printing, and they had to go back and change it. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, Stan. Stan got all ticked. Oh, she should cover more than that. That's not right. So, or, that or saying, what, what, uh... what year was this again? Like seventy-six. Okay, so 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 we're a little removed from Vietnam, so it's not like you know, hey man, you know, we hate America. <laughs> Although, hold on, this is right. This is right after around the time that like we had a president who like wiretapped a hotel. Good point. Yeah, H- had he retired? He quit by this point, hadn't he? I don't know my I history. So, seventy-seven. Well, I, I'm not. I'm no political historian, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say he he left the presidency in seventy-four, or maybe that's when it started. Now, do you know, know if the saying uh, "truth, justice, and the Terran way" was ever like repeated or would ever? Call- I mean, obviously, obviously, it didn't catch on. But uh... no, I think this is one of the few. If it's ever used again, I'm not completely sure. But I think this is one of the few times it's actually used. Usually, they go with the truth, justice, and American way, or just truth and justice, depending on and all that how... stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then you got your idiots here. You should do this for all the books from now on. It's it's it, you know it's it's more modern. Okay, okay, we'll do it for all the books. And then like Julia Schwartz like gives them a look like whispers that we <laughs> no no. <laughs> we'll just say that to get this out the door, and we'll we'll go back to the old way once we get back to our books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Um. Well, I guess we'll just wait till we get to the end to go over each part. So I guess, I guess Don had part two. Yes. Uh, okay. Prologue to winter in Manhattan, like Metropolis. Manhattan had a relative, relatively snowless winter, and like Metropolis, Manhattan's winter has been cold and bitter. And tonight, while the Man of Steel ends his battle with the master criminal at the bottom of Metropolis Bay, 
In New York, another hero prepares for a battle of his own. So we see the uh, another uh, a night in the life of your friendly neighborhood web spinner, the amazing Spider-Man. We see that guy uh, leaning on a uh, flagpole. He looks like he just he just woke up from a nap with uh, his camera in hand as his spider sense <laughs> goes off. Um, with a big headache. He's like, ah, what woke me up? Why can't I sleep in my costume? Oh, there's some, there's some thugs robbing the museum. I better take care of that. So Spider-Man, uh, he webs up his camera, gets it ready, so he takes some pics, and uh, we'll see how badly he, a job he did later on. But, you know, uh, the web spinner goes about his business. He beats them up, he cracks wise, and uh, he figures out their, their master planner, a.k.a. Dr. Octopus. The same. After our last rather unfortunate encounter, I decided to take my planned outing in finer detail. Yet still, you persist in thwarting me, and for that, you'll be amply punished. Look to the sky, Spider-Man! So Spider-Man looks up and sees the most ridiculous thing he's ever seen in his life. And he says as much. <laughs> Behold, the flying octopus! It's um, this robot with um, octopus arms and a big bulbous uh, center. So it look, looks like uh, a cross between a bug and, a, and some sort of ballpoint mouse. So, uh, it kind of looks like something from a Mega Man game. <laughs> it's mid-boss. <laughs> yes, exactly. Dr. Wiley's piling it. Um, so Spider-Man says, Eesh, and I thought the Spider-Mobile was a fiasco. Is that monstrosity supposed to impress me, Aki? So uh, uh, Dr. Octopus has his feelings hurt for Spider-Man uh, making fun of his new toy. So they battle, and um, Aki eventually knocks him out, before, but not before Spider-Man plants a little surprise, unbeknownst to the, the master criminal. More on that later. So Spider-Man is knocked unconscious, and when he wakes up, the cops think he, he stole and robbed the, um, the museum, of course. So they, they shoot at him, and he runs away. He changes back into his civilian identity as Peter Parker and goes to the Daily Bugle to cash in his check for the pictures he took. His boss, J. Jonah Jameson, chews him out, but Spider-Man, or I should say Peter, smooth talks his way and saying, hey, I got pictures of Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus, and the new robot, the Flying Octopus. You'll love these pictures. Shall I go on? So Jonah uh, changes his tone and pampers him and says, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're my son. And 45 saccharine-filled minutes later, uh, they get the pictures back that they ran on the front page for the evening edition, and the pictures are awful. So Jonah quickly changes his tune from, I love you, I love you like my own son. And then when he says, I'll kill you, I'll kill you with my bare hands. Oh, <laughs> uh, JJ. I'll shit your line now forever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like he's upset. He literally goes for him and like goes to throttle him. And Robert, Roddy Robertson says, Jonah, stop, please, someone call the police. He doesn't say that last part, but uh, <laughs> he Jam- might as well. Jameson throws him out before he grabs his gun, um, and uh, Mary Jane's outside to meet Peter. So uh, Peter's down because he has a bit of the old Parker luck again. He promised uh, Aunt May that he would take him and her and Mary Jane to the news expo tomorrow, but he got the schedules mixed up, and now Aunt May is with uh, Mary Jane's aunt, Aunt Anna, out, out on vacation, so she'll miss it. So he's feeling bad about that. And then but before Mary Jane can say any more, his spider sense goes off. His spider sense directs towards the Zeppelin hovering above the, um, above the buildings. So he runs with a bad excuse, changes to Spider-Man, crawls up the elevator shaft, and plans to jump over, but he realizes that he has no web fluid. Whoops. So he, he uh, maneuvers his, his, his fall like a skydiver and lands on the, uh, on the Zeppelin and bursts right through it because it's made of basically tissue paper because Dr. Octopus ran out of money. So, um, Doc Ock is like, how did you ever find me? And we see a, a brief flashback that he dropped a spider tracer onto Doc Ock before he was knocked unconscious. So the two mortal enemies battle and fight, and they head towards the river, uh, the Central Park Reservoir, to be precise. 
So Spider-Man knocks him unconscious and uh, flees away before the police come in, and the day is proverbially saved. But before we end on that prologue, we get another pause for hero identification. Poor Peter Parker was pitiful Couldn't have been any shyer Mary Jane still wouldn't notice him his hair was on fire But then one day he went to that science lab That mutated spider came down Oh, and now Peter crawls over everyone's walls And he's swinging all over town La, 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 lady down La, la, lady, la the web tonight cause we're all in the mood for a hero now and there's evil doers to fight seeing that while in high school young Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider at a size exposition instead of dying like he really should have he got uh, he found himself had incredible uncanny powers. He has spider sense, superhuman strength, can crawl on walls, and other wonderful things. <laughs> he also made himself a handy-dandy web shooter so he can spin webs. And after his uncle died in, a, in an incident where Peter blamed himself, he decided to fight for truth, justice, and the Turan way as Spider-Man. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I may have embellished that last part, but that's basically what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it it it, it works. <laughs> Um, and I believe that's the end of that, that prologue. So, All right. Josh, you're yeah, up. So going into prologue, uh, there, there might be a delay because cause I, I, I talk right after you introduce me, but then it sounds like you guys are waiting, uh, but it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Anyway, uh, prologue three, for some reason, the government, I guess reasons of plot, has decided that Dr. Octopus and Lex Luthor would stop escaping from prison so darn fast if they were sent to a special New Mexico facility instead. But this doesn't work, because Lex's incarceration lasts all of about five minutes. But we'll get to that. (laughs) He and um, Otto Octavius recognize each other, you know, because they... I mean, they're both famous in their own worlds, and these two people have always been in the same universe. And they exchange pleasantries (laughs) like, why, i kill your enemy if you'd kill mine, not if i kill your enemy first. It's almost as if that we'll escape from here and kill each other's enemies. While the guards are like, you know, scratching their chins, wait a minute, I don't think this is hypothetical. It turns out that even though Luther was searched, um, he was, I'm going to try and say this, was wearing a fake epidermis, which has sonic weapons underneath. Um, As you do. <laughs> that, 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 that was a hard pill for me to swallow, along with a lot <laughs> of other stuff like did here. Like, like have a giant undersea robot, and a jetpack, and a megazord <laughs> that he built. <laughs> exactly. He built a megazord. <laughs> like, that they, okay, but anyway. He's Zordon. So he, 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 takes off, he takes off his fake epidermis, can't believe I'm saying this, and uses it to reactivate um, Dr. Octopus's arms, which um, 
Well, with the arms reactivated, he busts out of the jail, rescues Lex, and we end this prologue with an image of Lex hopping onto Otto Octavius's back and riding away in a very comical-looking image, which I don't know why that image hasn't been, like, you know, made its rounds on the internet more often. That's one of those, like, out-of-context images that's just classic. <laughs> it, it, yeah, <laughs> that's actually more hilarious than I thought. You ride, ride the Octopus machine, only 25 cents. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. All right. And, uh, oh, you have your villain spotlight. Oh, okay. Okay. I, di I didn't write a thing for them, but, I mean, it's simple enough. It's, you know, Dr. Octopus, he was a physicist, and, oh, look what happened. Now he's a criminal, and he's got arms. Lex Luthor, um... Let me see. He was a childhood friend of Superboy's. Now he builds Megazords and uh, robs stuff. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I guess he lost his awesome. hair for some reason. Yes. <laughs> in, in a science experiment. Gone wrong. In a science yeah. experiment gone wrong! <laughs> Yay, we got it. I had to do it. All right. <laughs> Thank Check, you. Check, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's already on its way. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Which brings us to Chapter 1. A duel of titans. Uh, we bring we begin our story at the World News Conference, and after a quick cameo by Robbie Robertson and Ned and Betty Leeds, in which point we never ever ever see them again throughout the story, Jameson sees Peter and tells him he'd like a word with him. Peter declines, stating that he promised Mary Jane that he'd relax today. At which point Jameson basically jumps down his throat. Uh, for not being very hardworking or diligent, and sometimes he's not even sure Peter's a photographer. So Peter responds by basically telling Jonah that he can take his job and shove it, and walks off in a huff, at which point MJ calms him down so that they can enjoy the show. Meanwhile, Clark and Lois are checking out ComLab number one, which is a communication satellite, and it actually garners more interest from Clark than Lois, who thinks it's kind of boring. Then Clark's superhearing picks up Edge talking to someone, uh, stating that it might be a good idea to have Walter Cronkite cover the conference for WGBS. <laughs> so Clark goes over to try to save his job and is introduced to Tony Short, who is the head of Rassen, Ralson Foods and is wanting to sponsor the, sh the, convention, uh, the WGBS coverage of the convention in Metropolis. But there's a snag. Tony doesn't want Clark. He'd rather have someone with more recognition nationally, such as Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather or Roger Mudd, who I'm not familiar with. <laughs> that last one lost me, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing he must have been on the other network. I don't know. The cancel shows. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it would only be temporarily, of course, unless the ratings rise. So Lois uh, tells Clark that he needs to say something about it, and Clark just decides he's going to let it go for now which ticks Lois off, and she goes off in a huff herself. Heading back over to the ComLab satellite, she sees that there's a scaffold that would allow her to climb up and get some exclusive pictures of the ComLab. So as she's climbing up, still ticked, she slips because she's trying to climb a ladder in high heels. But she's caught with an easy miss, I've got you, from Peter Parker. Um, who, by the way, also is up there to get some exclusive photos, so I guess they won't be too exclusive anymore. <laughs> so after they introduce e themselves to each other and they realize who they are and are actually pretty um, impressed by who the other person is, they climb back down and see that Mary Jane is pretty jealous and comes out claws first, uh, 
But Lois calms her down, telling her that Peter's cute, but he's a bit young for her. Besides, she's got her eyes on Superman, who at this moment flies down as if he as if to say hi to Lois. But instead of landing, he blasts both women with um some kind of vision power. <laughs> and they both end up disappearing in a dazzling array of light. Which of course shocks both Peter and Clark because well Peter's uh, Peter's shocked of course because, you know, they just disappeared and Superman did it. Clark's a little surprised because, you know, he's Superman and it wasn't him. So Peter goes looking for phone booths, but Ma Bell recently replaced all of the phone booths with stalls, so he can't really hide in there, so he goes to the roof, changes his clothes, and heads off to go after Superman. Chapter 2. Who's next? That that, that would be me. Chapter 2. Well, Sweet. the two meet on the roof in this historic meeting. Spidey goes to attack Superman, thinking that he was the one who zapped MJ and Lois because, well, he saw Superman do it. And Superman goes to attack Spider-Man because he saw Superman zap MJ and Lois. So Spider-Man's nearby. He, he's probably involved. <laughs> Isn't that how it normally works? <laughs> this must be Spider-Man! Who else could do that stuff? <laughs> yeah. Well, Superman has, like, one, like, thought balloon, like, ah, you know, because of Spider-Man's reputation, he must have been behind a fake Superman, you know, not my enemy at large or anything like that, or one of the other people who's... Imp- it can't be a Bizarro or, like, anything like that. And Well, they, they duke it out as Otto and Lex are, like, giggling from a, new, from a rooftop nearby, and you can see via the art that Lex was the fake Superman, and they decide, you know, to spice things up a little bit by shooting Spider-Man... You know, <laughs> no, 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 no. okay, let me finish. <laughs> by, 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 by shooting Spider-Man unseen, like, he can't see this ray being shot at him, like, so he doesn't know what's going on. With a red sun radiation gun, which gives him an edge to fight against Superman, which begs the question, why hasn't Lex, you know, shot himself with this gun? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess he found out what happened in the 80s with, with using himself with kryptonite. The two That's heroes it. keep beating each other up. Instead of talking about the fact that this is a misunderstanding, Spider-Man is a little surprised about his extra strength, but I actually love this. Like, first he assumes he's just taking some, like, vitamins or something good, but I love when he's like, oh, this Superman's not as tough as everyone's saying he is. Look at me, I'm beating him up. And Superman's thinking the opposite about Spider-Man, like, wow, he must be stronger than I thought. Superman almost punches his head off, which is, like, really funny, and, like, it... <laughs> I actually found this page, like, a little bit of force I'm like, oh, no, his head almost came off. Must stop my punch. It's like, but he couldn't <laughs> stop the wind. And then Spider-Man gets, like, sent a mile away, <laughs> like, Wily Coyote style. He comes back and says that... And then Superman's like, hold on a second, Spider-Man. Fighting won't get us anywhere, even though I just punched you a mile away. <laughs> The radiation gun wears off, though, and Spider-Man wonders, hey, how come Superman got so hard? So he punches Superman until he basically gets worn out. And then the two finally compare notes, which is what they should have done in the first place, because I could see... I could see why Spider-Man would think that Superman did this, but, like, he's been impersonated so many times. I don't know. Anyway, they, they have a classic, you know, like, let's shake hands and team up and get these guys panel, which brings us to Chapter 3. Yes, it does. Chapter 3, titled, A Call of Battle. To Battle. Uh, of Battle. It's kind of folded there. Anyway. Um, uh, Spider-Man and Superman arrive at the old Penn Central Railroad Yard. 
I forgot why they go there, but they suspect that, they suspect that Luthor or whoever is behind the uh, crazy Superman and the women's disappearance must be over there. So uh, Superman dubs it the headquarters of the of our super imposter. Um, Spider-Man likes to go see, take a look, see first, and um, finds out that the, the rooms are beset with a bunch of traps. the The floors have machine guns and, and machine guns in the floorboards. The walls are electrified, and the ceilings are red hot. So Spider-Man can barely do anything. So he just jumps around and barely survives. Superman says, "I've stared this wooden wall long enough. It's my turn." <laughs> so he he just bursts through without a care in the world, uh, or waiting for his partner. So Spidey and Supes get in the same at, get in the same room at the same time, where Lex Luthor and Doctor Octopus are patiently waiting for them. Lex is all relaxed in his chair, and Doctor Octopus says, "You know, he's at least he looks like he's hungry." Um, <laughs> they're like, "I know you." Uh, the heroes are like, "You know, what did you do with uh, Lois Lane and that red-headed kid who was with her?" And so Lex Luthor turns on his television and sees that Lois and Mary Jane are seemingly arguing <laughs> while they're being strapped <laughs> to a pole. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm noticing this just now. Mary Jane has her finger to Lois, like, "Stay away from my man, honey." Uh-uh. <laughs> uh, although there's no dialogue, so we can only assume this is what she's saying. I'll shut your line now forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mary Jane reminds Lois of Lana, so that's why they don't like each other. Oh, there you go. Oh. Uh, <laughs> That's the line from a from a Lois Lane and Lana Lang story where like Lois is put on trial for like murdering Lana after she like Lana dies and Lois publicly said on TV like the night before, I'll shut your line mouth forever. <laughs> oh god. So um so Lex and, and uh Otto can barely contain their laughter because they have these hilarious looking grins on their faces. So Spider Man says, I'll shut your line mouth forever, but before he can do anything about it, the two disappear. It was a hologram the entire time. Spider-Man says, "Well, I can figure out where they uh, where they went by reconfiguring this uh, com- control station over here." So before he starts typing on there, Spider-Man, Superman's like, "No!" and uses his super breath to blow Spider-Man away before the explosion does, which elicits from the computer console. Strangely, Spider-Man's spider sense didn't go off, but we don't worry about that. Spider-Man is still alive for now. Um, too bad that the, the computer busted, but of course, Superman has super speed and super photographic memory. So he re- reassembled the computer from the smallest circuit up, and the time it takes to blink an eye, he says. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Super Spider-Man does reconfigurate uh, and find out where Ock and Otto are. Um, 3.04 degrees south latitude, 37.22 degrees east longitude. And if I know my geography, that's Africa, isn't it? To be spe- specific, Spider-Man, that's Mount Kilimanjaro. That's what I said. Yay! <laughs> It's amazing how a, a web slinger from New York would know that. But... So, let me get through this room. Oh, I can't do it. Don't worry, I'll bust through the wall. Let me touch this computer. No, don't. It'll explode. I'll do it. Hey, I know this latitude. This is the continent. Actually, it's this exact mountain. At that point, <laughs> I want to say to him, shut up and let me have one victory. <laughs> Please. It's a, that's Africa. Ugh. Actually, it's this exact mountain in Africa. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> so, um, so Superman flies Spidey, who's using web air skis, as though he were um, what's the guy's name from a uh, fourth world, uh, the Black Racer. Uh, there you go. From that guy, um, and they arrived at Kilimanjaro, where they run into a bunch of um, uh, warriors of the Maasai, a nomadic tribe familiar to that region. So they're asking, "Hey, have you guys seen any uh, supervillains running around?" And uh, a tribeman says, one is a man of many arms, but he's immediately interrupted by RuPaul, or a guy who looks like him. A guy in a pink... 
<laughs> a guy in, with pink hair and um, lots of beads. You're Superman, aren't you? I saw photos of you when, when I studied in London. My name's Noon Chaka, and if there's anything you need, I'm your man. So they take him to the leader of the village, who, who um, requests a demonstration of their powers. So Superman really grabs like 20 men and just juggles them without a care in the world for their heart conditions. Um, and, and, and it pleases the tribe leader. In fact, he laughs his head off, seemingly. So he offers them uh, uh, their finest food, a mixture of milk and cattle blood, and um, they pass. And they lead them to North Kilimanjaro, where they're looking for um, missing tribesmen who, who went missing uh, a few months ago. So that must be where the supervillains are. Um, Spider Spider-Man's spider sense finally goes off, but too late as Nunchucka is backhanded by one of the missing tribesmen. He has superhuman strength, so Spider-Man's webbing does nothing, and Spider-Man's um, somersault does nothing either, which is one of his most typical moves, of course. Um, he starts to attack Superman and pulls out a sword that even cuts Superman's hair. So Superman realizes that this must be some sort of red sun radiation that's built, imbuing his strength. Tells Spider-Man, hey, use your webbing. Superman uses his heat vision to make Spider-Man's web fluid stronger. Let me say that again. Superman uses his heat vision to make Spider-Man's <laughs> web fluid strong. I can't. <laughs> that does happen, but I can't believe it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Science! <laughs> Science! Strong enough to make it into stronger than steel and uh, ties the rogue Bushman up. So they find the secret headquarters behind the mountain and walk through it. And that leads us into... Chapter 4, The Doomsday Decision. As the two heroes check out the... I guess you could call it their headquarters. They notice a large rocket silo, meaning that our villains must have gone to space. <laughs> and obviously they have. Because... <laughs> so, and obviously they have because Lex Luthor and Doc Ock are inside a small spacecraft from belonging to the Injustice Gang of the World and heading to the satellite headquarters of the Injustice Gang, who had banded together to fight the Justice... Well, just says Justice, but I'm going to go with Justice League. But they failed because they didn't have Lex with him, and so he appropriated their satellite for his use. Inside, they see Lois and, almost said Lana, Mary Jane floating in a bubble, still stuck to that same pole, And although they don't seem to be yelling at each other anymore. Not, not now, anyway. Yeah, exactly. So after a little more talk, we get an interlude to New York, where we see J. Jonah Jameson and Morgan Edge having drinks and in a code approved book I think this was code approved uh, let's hope so <laughs> well, it doesn't have the code approval thing on the I don't know anyway in a code approved book they're having apparently liquor and Jonah wants him to hold the water and they talk about how they have such problems with their star people such as Peter Parker and Clark Kent and they they leave the bar and walk into I don't know where they are but apparently they're watching the launch of the Comlad satellite which is pretty amazing, considering it was just hanging at the uh, World News Convention earlier that morning. Or the so, fact that they're not covering the biggest story on Earth, which is that Superman <laughs> just went into an expo and murdered two girls. Well, yeah, there's that, too. They don't mind. <laughs> like, yeah, no biggie. Well, <laughs> wouldn't, like, the, they be on, like, overdrive? or? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They just walk past this place. Oh, hey, look. They launched Comlab. Woo. Can't blame them for going on despite this morning's disturbance. They are expensive, after all. But 
Uh, we, I guess there's it's only more like 20 some pages. <laughs> One of your employees was disintegrated before your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh well, minor technicality. <laughs> so, as Mission Control uh, releases the heat shields, Lex decides to take over because that little uh, programming circuit he stole earlier allows him to take control of the Comlab satellite. So, keeping with the, I guess, the pre programmed maneuvers, they then re uh, rotate the communications tower and unfurl the solar panels, and then Lex activates the high-intensity laser probe into Earth's atmosphere. At this point, Superman and Spider-Man show up, and Spider-Man is apparently, according to Superman, he's, far, he's piloting a space shuttle model, <laughs> but unless they look exactly the same, the art shows that he's piloting another Injustice Gang of the World ship. <laughs> which I also find interesting. So, <laughs> one way or another, Spider-Man is flying a spaceship. Of course he can. Don't you want to think about yeah. science? <laughs> exactly. I mean, if the guy can drive a Spider-Mobile, he can pilot a spacecraft. I mean, it's not that difficult. In outer I space. I, can't, I never knew Peter Parker did this until now. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Spider-Man. He's awesome. Meanwhile, um, we see a job for Superman as the laser probe is actually causing problems all over the planet, uh, currently causing weather problems across middle America. And Superman flies to save the day, but is hit by either another laser probe or the same one, but it's got sonics in it. So Superman gets knocked out, knocked out due to his super hearing. Spider-Man tries to intervene, but he also gets hit by the same beam, which knocks out the life support system of the ship and he blacks out. When they come to, they're inside the satellite, and Lex and Ock decide to explain their whole scheme. What they're going to do is use the laser to create storms across the entire Midwest, from New Orleans through St. Louis to Chicago, and put it in the midst of a hurricane. As of now, it's only covering the Midwest, but it's going to soon cover the entire planet. Unless the U.S. government, because that's the only one that matters, pays Luther $10 billion within the next hour. If not, the storm will cover the entire planet. So, deciding that they know what they need to do, Spider-Man and Superman go into action, attacking the other person's enemies. But, Super, uh, Lex activates, or deactivates, I guess, the artificial gravity, causing everyone to float. Since Superman is still dazed, he's off-balance enough for Doc Ock to throw him around with his appendages. And unfortunately, Spider-Man's web shooters can't fire straight in space, so he's flung into a wall. And eventually, they bounce off the walls, and the heroes are flung into each other and are wrapped up in Spider-Man's webbing. While they try to get out, Superman finally gets another attack from Doc Ock, but he's able to use the arms against Doc Ock and fling him into a wall, which apparently actually rips a couple of the arms out of his, I guess, device. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. And also knocks his glasses off, which means that he can't see at all. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Superman is still dizzy from Luther's sonic weapon, though, so he is just kind of floating while Luther f uses his jet boots to fly over and grab uh, Doc Ock's glasses. Spider-Man tries to stop him, but it doesn't really work because Doc Ock, even though he can't see, is able to genuinely... Uh, delicately <laughs> take the glasses from Luther's hands and put them on his face. Unfortunately, they're broken. No! Very Velma Dinkley. 
<laughs> exactly. My glasses! Jink I can't see anything without my glasses! <laughs> Jinkies, they're broken! Voice! <laughs> <laughs> oh no, Scoob! <laughs> um, so... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Luther and Spider-Man are in t start tussling, and Spidey gives Lex a big pal to the face. But they realize there's a large tsunami headed towards the East Coast. So uh, Spider-Man says that he can take care of the two villains, even though he hasn't done a very good job so far by himself. And Superman needs to stop the bad the the bad guys. Yeah, the tidal wave. So Superman heads out. But Lex is able to close the airlock, which is futile, of course, because Superman can just bust through, and he flies down to, towards the Earth at super speeds. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is, is actually getting all wrapped up in Doc Ock's arms, and actually gets Lex... Well, he doesn't really get Lex to do anything. Lex starts gloating and says that in moments the chain reaction will start, and what began as a simple blackmail plan will end in the glorious destruction of a planet which once held my genius in contempt. That's why I brought Superman here through Miss Lane, to witness the final culmination of my black ambition. To which Spider-Man goes, oh boy, and we get nice music from Starbucks. And Spider-Man uh, tries to point out to Ock that Lex has gone a little crazy and is going to destroy the whole Earth, which causes Ock to go against Luther, and he busts the computer equipment, basically turning off the Comlab satellite. So now the villains are fighting each other, which eventually causes Spider-Man to be able to get loose, as Superman heads down to Earth to take out that tidal wave, which is looks like it's getting even bigger. And if he can't stop it, Basically, the whole East Coast. Goodbye, Boston. Goodbye, New York. Goodbye, Washington. Well, you get the point. At this point, Superman dedu deduces that the tidal wave is one mile high and about two miles, or two miles, 200 miles long. So, flying at, fa at super speed, he shatters the sound barrier, moving at Mach 1, through Mach 2, Mach 3, and creating a wall of sound, which meets the onrushing wall of water, and they cancel each other out, leaving nothing but calm water beneath him. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is finally able to get another good uh, good pop on Lex Luthor and knocks him out. Afterwards, the looks like, I don't know where they came from, but apparently Spider-Man is able to web swing the big bubble with the girls in it down to the top of a tall skyscraper in, I'm guessing they're in New York again. The villains are all webbed up and Spider-Man and Superman say they hope they'll meet each other again, and they leave the girls to fend for themselves on the roof, with apparently no door on it, as they take their villains to their respective prisons. The end. Or is the it... end! Lois pushes Mary Jane off the building. No way. <laughs> awesome. Um, but not quite. They're still our ever-loving epilogue. That's a very Stanley thing to say. Um... 12 minutes later, after delivering their respective villains to their respective jails, the two respective heroes switch to their respective alter egos as Clark Kent and Peter Parker. They both walk in. Actually, Clark does get there back before uh, uh, Peter does to meet J. Jonah Jameson and Morgan Edge and Lois and MJ. They say, oh, we, we both got the same story. You got the photos and I got the news. Um, it seems we covered the same event, Parker, although I don't recall seeing you there, Clark Kent says. I stick to the shadows, Kent. Apparently just like you and Batman. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Jonah, <laughs> do I get a raise? Um, 
so all is well that ends well. And as Jonah and Morgan Edge uh, sit there and continue to drink liquor, uh, Peter, MJ, Clark, and Lois walk into the sunset. And this, folks, is definitely the end for tonight, anyway. Or is it? Yes, it is. Dun, dun, dun. Only 92 pages later. <laughs> oh, and look, um, MJ and Lois are alive, which is something that we care about as editors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just lo- they look like they're just sitting down having drinks. Yeah. <laughs> well, wasn't anyone looking for us? Didn't you wonder where we were? It was a news exit. It was like, all nah. very confusing. <laughs> we just went and had drinks and watched the launch. No biggie. What's your name again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast I've got a few things to say about Superman The Superman Vidcast The world's best podcast And Radio Kale from SupermanHomepage.com As well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton And Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton From Pendant Audio Productions Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Look up in the sky It's a bird It's a plane No, it's supermanhomepage.com the number one Superman fan site in the world supermanhomepage.com covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today news, reviews, rumors and reports supermanhomepage.com for all your Superman comics TV shows, movies, cartoons radio shows and more everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com Hey everybody, I'm just jumping in here by myself for a couple of quick things. First up, and I know this will come to you as quite a shock, uh, but this episode is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novels, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Uh, For example, say you wanted to pick up a copy of the DC Marvel Crossover Classics Volume 2 trade paperback. Now, this book, which collects team-ups between Superman and Silver Surfer, Batman and Captain America, and two different team-ups between Batman and the Punisher, has a cover price of $14.95, but in-stock trades has it for just $8.97, which is a savings of 40%. So check them out at www.instocktrades.com. Now, with that out of the way, if you'll recall, last episode I posed a question to everybody... What is your favorite version of the Superman origin? And I got quite a few responses. First up, I got an email from Neil Adams. No, not that Neil Adams. And Neil says, Hi Charlie, 
Just wanted to say that yours is one of the several podcasts I listen to, and it's good to hear you back. I'm especially looking forward to your coverage of the Superman-Spider-Man crossovers and Superman vs. Muhammad Ali. Are you planning on reviewing the Superman films as well? Anyway, I'm writing this email in response to your request for us Superman fans to give you our opinion on what's the best origin story. I've divided my answer in two, one for other media and one for the comics. In the case of the comics, it really comes down to two choices. The Man of Steel miniseries from 1986 and the 12-part Birthright series by Mark Wade. Man of Steel, for me, redefined the Superman origin with healthy dollops of the films. I was blown away by John Byrne's art and the depictions of Krypton, the Kins, Lois, Lex, and basically everything was great. I could go further and talk about specifics such as keeping the Kins alive and making Superman the disguise and less powerful and omitting Superboy, but you mentioned that you were going to read these messages on the air and, well, you have other things to do. Thank you, Neil. As for Birthright, I think it neatly updated the Man of Steel story, and I really like the art and the plot, and have read all 12 issues in one sitting on a couple of occasions. I believe it's one of the inspirations for next year's Superman film. I would also love for this to be adapted into a DC animated film, perhaps in order to do it justice, split it into two as they are doing as they are going to do with The Dark Knight Returns. As for other media depictions, for me there's only one choice, and that's Superman the movie, specifically the 2001 DVD or director's cut. It's the closest thing I have to a favorite film, and from the opening credits with John Williams' incomparable score to the wheat fields of Kansas, Superman's first night, and just so on, it's positively awesome. Over the last few years, I've followed a certain tradition, namely around New Year's Eve, I sit down in front of my TV and put on the various making of documentaries about Superman the movie, preceded by a Look Up in the Sky documentary, and culminating in watching the DVD Pure Magic. Keep up the good work. Neil Adams, Cardiff, UK. Thank you very much, Neil. Um, As far as your questions for me, I do plan on covering the Superman films. I don't know when, but I have plans for covering all four of the Christopher Reeve films, since basically they were out in the Bronze Age. Uh, The fourth one I know is kind of iffy, but I'm going to fudge it a little since it's part of the same continuity if you want to go into that. So yes, I will be covering those. So thank you for writing in, Neil. Now, I also posted it on Facebook. Uh, This show has both a Facebook group page and a Facebook fan page because I got a little crazy when I was making them. So when I posted it on the group page, I got a little bit bigger response. So here's what I got. Uh, Greg Barr uh, responded that he liked The Man of Steel. It was his first comics origin story, and the origin in the Daily Strip is a close second for him. Scott Gardner of Two True Freaks uh, says that as much as I dig Man of Steel, I do have my quibbles with it. I would have to say the one from Amazing World of Superman. I love that version. Uh, Of course, that covered that in episode 50, so hopefully he listened to that. Uh, Michael Bailey of (sighs) so many podcasts. Uh, He does From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast with Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Bailey. Wow. Jeffrey Taylor. He does several of the two true freak shows with Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell and uh, he's on a Pad Smash Incredible Hulk podcast with J. David Weider and Lee Busby so he's a pretty busy guy he also has a couple of his own shows so I'm sure you know if you're listening to this show I'm sure you know who Michael Bailey is especially since he's been on the show before so anyway Michael says I haven't listened to the coverage of it yet unfortunately but oddly enough Action Comics 500 is my favorite telling of the origin 
It may sound odd for a post-crisis kid to say, but that issue was a joy to read and really lays out the Silver and Bronze Age Superman in one convenient story. My favorite version of the origin is the post-crisis one. While I like the way the creators laid out the origin of 500, I prefer the burn concept of Krypton more than the Silver and Bronze Age version. Alan Leach Jr. says, I have to go with Scott. The Amazing World of Superman version is my favorite. And let's see. Eric Mannix uh, posts, or posts, well, actually, he did post it. Posts that he likes Man of Steel, although he likes Birthright as well. Same with, so he agrees with Neil. Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics uh, says that the story of Superman's life, which was re- originally from Superman 146 but reprinted in the UK Superman Annual 1979, which I believe is one of the first times they actually went did a full origin for Superman way back in the late 40s with art by Wayne Boring, I believe. I might be wrong on that, but I believe that's that one. Adam Deschanel uh, who you may remember me mentioning last episode uh, is my kind of my editor on Slipstream at clockworkcomics.co.uk and is also um, a contributor to the Superman homepage. He says, uh, In print, I enjoyed Birthright and Man of Steel, and on TV, I liked Lois and Clark's episodes with the glowing orb. And Michael Bradley of Thrilling Adventures of Superman and Green Lantern's Light post that he likes the one where Krypton is doomed. Um, I'm going to go with that he likes them all, but I'm pretty sure it's doomed at all. Um, so that's the, from the group page. The fan page, I had a few more responses. Uh, John John M. Wilson responded first on this, uh, which uh, John, who you may know, is uh, has his own Superman show, Golden Age Superman, as well as the New 52 Adventures of Superman, which he co-hosts with J. David Weider and Michael Kaiser, as well as, well, that's the shows he currently has. He's also been known for uh, his show Amazing Spider-Man Classics, which he used to host with my fellow co-host for this episode. Uh, But John says, I should probably say Man of Steel for its complexity and depth, but that may be because I I know it so well. The current origin, though not yet complete, also has me seriously intrigued. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have to register my vote for the Golden Age origin as I, as told in the opening newspaper strips of 1939. That is my favorite of all. And Michael Kaiser, who I just mentioned was on New 52 Adventures of Superman and also uh, used to be on Legends of the Batman on and off, uh, has said, I guess Man of Steel, though I feel like I'm forgetting something better. And J. David Weider responds with Superman from Krypton to Metropolis. So thank you, everyone. And now, back to the show. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. All right. Well, um, I guess first we'll uh, I'll cover what we what we're actually in the inside covers. Uh, the inside back cover, which I'll cover first, because that's actually also was reprinted, shows the um, process of how to create the cover to this issue. It started all apparently. Carmine Infantino laid out the whole thing 
it was all his idea. So first, he starts off with an image of the two heroes rushing at each other, but they're not fully there. So then he comes up with another one with Spider-Man hanging on a building and Superman rushing up to see him, but Sp Superman dominates the picture, so obviously Stan wouldn't have any of that. So next, we have the two heroes apparently floating over the city, and they're basically... it's similar to the same pose we actually get but slightly different angle and both of them sign off of it, on it so Carmine comes up with a different one with the Empire State Building under them and Spider-Man on the antenna and Superman flying up to see him and then of course it was laid out by Ross Andrew and Neil Adams and possibly John Romita and inked by Dick Giordano and inked by Terry Austin also and that's how we got the cover. In, okay, so that's... And then, of course, the back cover has our two heroes in full color, standing side by side and looking at us with smiles on their faces. Yay. Always one face. <laughs> well, smile on the one face. The other one, Spider-Man's just kind of staring. Who knows what he's doing? Um, inside the front cover, we have a little note from both... A soliloquy from Stan Lee. And I actually haven't seen many Stan Lee pictures before he was, like, really, really old. So... To see him young here and actually not have a whole bunch of skin hanging off of his face, it is, actually looks pretty cool. Uh, awesome. <laughs> he, he was a disco king. Yeah, there you go. He was every and, 70s, like, cliche. <laughs> he, was, oh yeah, he was like a poster child for, like, 70s midlife crisis. He's definitely got, he's definitely rocking the Magnum mustache. Awesome. It's, it's pretty, no, see, he doesn't have his glasses on, though, so that's also throwing me off. I know he, used, he usually wears the glasses. And then, of course, we have Carmine Infantino smoking a cigar in the other picture. And both of them, I'm not going to go through and read them, but basically it talks about how cool these projects are and how much money they hope to get from it. And Stan, surprisingly, has a whole lot more to say in his little soliloquy than Carmine Infantino has in his column. Would you imagine... <laughs> I know who who would have said or who would have thought, and of course Stan ends with an Excelsior. Awesome. So, um, do we have any? Okay, what do we have for notes? Uh, well, we still got. Uh, well, 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 since you're the host, what did you think first off? Oh yeah, I should, I should go for. Okay, uh, well, first off, despite some stuff that we nitpicked, I thought this was an awesome story, and I think that if I had been alive in 1976 and old enough to read a comic book, and knew these characters at all, this would have been probably my favorite comic forever. This is the first time that the heroes of two big companies actually got to meet up against or together, and I thought this was a pretty epic story, although personally I think the second one's a little better, but that's not here or there. there. Um, as Josh pointed out, um, page one uh, at the beginning, I like how <laughs> Lex Luthor built a Megazord. Now it doesn't look quite as cool as those Japanese one as those Japanese robots sometimes, but you have to remember this is 1976 before American artists were influenced by anime and Power Rangers and Voltron, so it doesn't look quite as nifty, but it is really cool. <laughs> and no matter what Superman does, there's always some kind of weapon to use against him. And it was stupid of him to not tr trace the uh, footsteps back. Uh, hello. Very stupid. <laughs> yeah, but then if he had, we wouldn't have been able to meet, you know, gone to GPS and learn about uh, Clark's life, which also is really cool because I like how both of these prologues basically give you an, a full adventure 
in the lives of both characters so you can almost get a taste of what their comics would be like. So that was cool. Yeah, that, and, that was uh, nice, yeah. And let's see. And, and speaking of all the different artists, I thought it was pretty interesting. First of all, I want to know how Lex got to the underwater base with a jetpack. Because <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it probably turns into a submarine. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was interesting and ironic that the undersea lab has apparently spider legs, as if to foreshadow the future. And um, some of these faces look like artists. Um, a super, one of the Superman artists. I don't know if you guys know your Superman artist, but Kurt Swan is one of the big Superman artists. Oh yeah, especially of the Bronze Age and the Silver Age. And on page eleven, the Lex and Superman on the bottom two panels definitely look like he drew them least on the faces so i don't know if maybe they decided to just bring everybody in and just not give them credit well yeah and um, then, um ramita was the spider-man big cheese and kurt small was the superman big cheese so i wouldn't be surprised although obviously adams did do some other stuff exactly and then page 12 we have superman doing the disco trying to dis- uh trying to dodge the lasers <laughs> and... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hot stuff. But never mind. <clears throat> I shouldn't sing. And once again, I, I noticed a pattern running through this whole story is that Superman keeps getting hit in the eyes with some lasers and is dazed a lot. That's his real um, weakness. Yeah, it, it's not kryptonite. It's dazing. And um, yeah, and then of course the hero identification was really cool. I like the Spider-Man stuff because I'm not as well versed on Spider-Man, but I knew enough to go with this story because I know about Doc Ock and Spider-Man. And it actually fits in with the little bit I did know the first time I read this because the only exposure I'd had to Spider-Man was the uh, cartoons. Oh, it's so, cartoons, like the, uh, like, the, like the Amazing Friends and stuff? Well, I had, when I was little, I did. I must have watched the amazing Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends because I remember the Iceman and Fires, uh, Firestar. Huh. Firestar? Yeah. 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 Down, 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 down. So... I love listening to the end of every spi- of every crawl space because he uses that music at the end, so it's really cool. <laughs> and um, oh, yes. then, of course, by the time I would have gotten this, I would have been getting into the '90s cartoon. So that would have I would have been probably known more at that point because the other one came out when I was just a wee little lad, so I wouldn't I would only barely remember that. But yeah, I would have paid more attention to this one. So while I didn't recognize Doc Ock's jumpsuit. Um, I did know who he was, and and Spider-Man seemed to fit the mold from the cartoon, so it all seemed to, you know, look really good. And um, I didn't know this is before I knew all about McFarlane and Bagley and all them. So this just to me looked like they could have come right from the cartoon. And uh, of course, I knew who MJ was. Don't ask me how, because um, <laughs> I have no clue, <laughs> and she wasn't in the cartoon. Uh, at first anyway so um but that's neither here nor there i like how we actually get an adventure where spider-man not only runs out of web fluid but then forgets that he ran out of web fluid until he needs it um but i do like that they were able to actually use goodyear on the blimp oh yeah i i, I never thought about like copyrights or anything like that yeah well see at first the first one the first image you see of it i mean it's too obscure to to be able to read it and then the second one, there's a word balloon covering the good part of it. But they have the little foot thing, the Achilles foot, I guess. And then 
when they have the wide angle shot of Spider-Man flying towards it, it does say Goodyear. So it's, I wonder, there's nothing on here about it, but they who knows? Say, um, Andrew Run, I remember that it had, um, like, th- there was copyright stuff. I remember, um, like, he steals a McDonald's from a guy in the Clone Saga. Really? Yeah. That's yeah, he... he... <laughs> Yeah, he, he steals McDonald's, and, like, he's like, all right, let me just give the guy some money and pay him, like, and then he faints before he can give money. That always bothered me about that story. <laughs> well, it it seems in the little, in the, well, not the little bit, because um, I've read more since then, but it seems like Marvel's a little looser with the copyright or being able to use the copyright, and I'm guessing it's because they're in a real city, whereas most of the DC stuff is in a made-up city, so they make up more stuff. Oh, that's how I always assumed. But, uh, like Josh pointed out, it is interesting that they thought it would be a good idea for Lex Luthor and Doc Ock to be in a prison together in such close proximity, and apparently they're the only ones there. And the epidermis thing. How do you smuggle... I don't care how little those components are. How do you smuggle that on your arm without someone noticing? Well, you see, it... um... (laughs) Uh... (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, but <laughs> but it works uh, I guess and then um, page 37 I do like how we get some a few words from Ned Betty and Robbie and we have some continuity because they just they referenced the the honeymoon that, that Betty skipped out on exactly and that would that would have been just about this time right oh yeah yeah which is Actually, I found that a little weird. Like, Ned and Betty were called from their honeymoon to go to this news expo, and it's I- I'm probably thinking too much about this, but I almost feel like that line was thrown in there because when Conway was writing the book, Ned and Betty were still, like, regular supporting characters, so maybe when he did the story, like, he had them in there, and then at the last minute after Andrew drew them, someone's like, Ned and Betty are out of the country in current Marvel books. And if this was done now... Like an editor would say on Formspring or something, well, they came back for this day, or this takes place before then. But I think because they cared a little more about continuity back then, like, they put, like, maybe an editor at the last minute, like, put in a line from them saying, huh, it's a good thing we got back from our honeymoon to go to this thing for some reason. <laughs> uh, but exactly. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it. And then, I, I of course, oh, Betty's Betty, who's going to be a reporter in the 90s, she's very confused by this news expo, she says. Like, just by walking <laughs> in the door, she says, it's all very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's what, very, it's so what, confusing. What, what's so confusing? You're on an escalator. It's going up. <laughs> awesome. They haven't even gotten into it yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's going to be a reporter one day, so. <laughs> Yay. Well, she's and check out. Exactly, and check out, of course, Peter's sweater because it's fashionable. I was about to say, man, he, 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 I wonder how much Bill Cosby charged for that thing. <laughs> oh, he, well, it looks like oh, he he wore that thing throughout throughout the Andrew run. Oh, really? I, I guess yeah. he, it's been a while since I read it, but I mean, I know he he always wore very noticeable clothing, but like, well, I I read the Andrew run in essential, so I, I didn't see it in color, so maybe it just registered differently. It looks like the ships from Space Invaders. <laughs> oh yeah, or Galaga. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, now, most of this is kind of forgettable. I do like, once we get through the news conference, when, uh, well, first of all, I like when Peter saves Mary, uh, not Mary Jane, Lois, he uses the easy miss, I've got you line, which is lifted almost exactly from the Superman movie, which doesn't come out for another two years. And they try to make it look like it's Superman because of the coloring on the sweater. 
So that was interesting. And then the same gag from Superman the movie when Peter tries to find a phone booth and it's all those um, stalls instead. So he has to do a double take and then run off and find another place to change. I try to say Jerry Conway was right off ideas. Yeah, it's like, well, actually, no, I'm saying I'm wondering if the movie people were influenced by this. That, I'm this, wondering... this, this was before then? Is that true? Or after? Yes, the movie came out in 78. Of course, they should have been filming it, but the film, depending on the filming schedule, um, this could have been either a, either a preliminary version of this or something could have been sent in the reference materials for the movie, hmm. and uh, they could have used some of it for ideas just because of the, how close it's the same idea, and I don't think that Jerry Conway would have had access to any movie scripts yet. I think they would have been filming by this, but I don't think they even announced the movie until 76. This is 76, and they would have yes. two years later? Okay. Right. And also, uh, the scene where Lois falls, Peter catches her, and then the next pa- panel, or the panel across from that with, with Mary Jane, I can definitely see the, the Ramita senior... Uh, artwork in there, like 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 without a doubt. I remember I was reading it last night. I was like, I know it says Ross Andrew, but I'll mm-hmm. I'll be I'll be uh, I, I don't know horse whipped if that's not John Reed the senior. Exactly. Yeah, that's why I wanted to look at too, because I'm like, wow, Peter's face looks entirely different than anyone else's kind of face in this whole book. For the better. So I want to say for the better, because I I I know Ross Andrew is a very classic Spider-Man artist. He's not one of my favorite Spider-Man artists. I mean, especially in comparison to Ramita Sr., although around this era, he was the Spider-Man artist. But the mm-hmm. fact that they got Ramita Sr. in here does make it a, this a bit... It adds, allows a little more weight to this crossover for me personally, so I'm glad he was in here. Plus, it gives them the, uh, what you call it, the classic look for both characters as much as possible, I guess. Absolutely. Yes, I'm very glad that they brought him in there. And like you said, I mean, I've I've seen some of these older issues, so I know Ross was, or Andrew was a classic Spider-Man artist but you know like you said the Romita stuff is just so much higher quality it seems yeah it's a lot it's a lot more just just almost indefinable it's it's, it's great mm-hmm. and uh, so once we start getting seeing Superman and uh, I almost said Batman Superman and Sp- Spider-Man fi- uh, clashing uh, page 48 is where I first really notice the Neil Adams Superman mm-hmm. because that when he's flying basically diagonally across the page if that isn't a Neil Adams Superman I don't know what it is um, definitely and it's I'm not as familiar with the artwork on Spider-Man so it's hard to tell um, because I just know I'm more familiar obviously with a Neil Adams Superman plus the face is what gives it away a lot for me and with Spider-Man you can't really see a face so I would actually say that maybe the anatomy on Spider-Man could have been done by Adams too because if nothing else Adams has very you know well uh, well illustrated anatomy and I I don't think even even at his best I don't think John Romita Sr. was that uh, precise I shouldn't say precise that's the wrong word but like that maybe detailed with it and Ross Mm -hmm. Andrew wasn't at all uh, at least at least to that (laughs) Not not to slag on the guy, but like at least to that degree, uh, or it could be just a matter of Terry Terry Austin's inks, possibly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then the big page fifty splash page with the super spider punch, that is definitely a Neil Adams Superman. Oh yes, absolutely. I would imagine that has some Neil Adams on Spider Man too. Like I said uh, when I was going over the notes, nothing said anything about Neil Adams working on the Spider Man stuff, but. I'm not sure because obviously I haven't asked him. <laughs> but uh, 
Don't ask him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it'd take 20 minutes. He, he's too busy writing Batman Odyssey. Yeah, and that X-Men thing. Ooh. Oh, yeah, which, which everyone's going to love. Well, yes, of course, because everyone loves stuff from before trying to fit itself into retro continuity. Um, I do like Spider-Man's reaction to getting hit by the punch because he literally flies. That's awesome. But the fact that he seems to get back to Superman so quick, it looks like it's the same building. Even though they're not at the same building. I don't know, it's weird. Well, you know, it's a... (laughs) Yeah, and then of course, there's all kinds of jokes when um, Spider-Man starts asking how Superman got so hard all of a sudden. But I'm dish. And then, you have gotten harder. But... My hand can feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. God. Uh, And then... Yeah, you'd think he'd learn after the first hit how it hurt, but I don't know. It is a little bit of humor, so that's actually kind of funny. Well, it's like I mean, if he broke his hands, how uh, he he he's following the rest of the issue. So I'm wondering, it would have been interesting for him to run around with broken hands. But what are you, not, what are you gonna do? <laughs> and then, of course, the flying on skis. I don't know if that works. No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, I would think Superman would have to fly pretty fast for that to work, but I don't know. I'm not a physicist. And um, I like like uh, Don, who did the yeah you parted, pointed this out yes. I think how um, Spider-Man goes the hard way through the building and Superman just crashes through. I don't know why Spider-Man did his part. Why didn't they both go in the same way? It, anyway, um, I guess it's to show off more of Spider-Man's stuff. What and, little it is because it's, it's bad in comparison to Superman. He just busts through stuff. Exactly, and. Once we get to the tribe, I'm thinking a different artist drew the tribe, tribesmen too, especially on page 69 when uh, Spider-Man's trying to go up against Nuchako's friend. That looks like completely different art on the musculature. I'm also, I'm almost thinking maybe Gil Kane or something. I'll give you Gil uh, Kane, especially on the Bushman guy. Um, yeah. I don't know about Spidey, but the other guy, and I know that Gil Kane was had also worked on, with both companies, so it would make sense that he could mm-hmm. do a little bit on this. Especially around this so time, yeah, yeah. Um, and he yeah. was he still he he at least he was a classic Spider-Man artist. He I think when I looked it up, I think he was doing some covers around this time still. So I don't know, but it definitely looks more like Gil Kane on the uh, Tribesman guys there until um, Superman knocks him out. <laughs> and again, I like how somehow Spider-Man knows how to fly a spaceship because he's just that talented. And somehow they decided to use an Injustice Gang of the World ship. I'm guessing there was an extra one sitting at the base when they left. Well, all the fact that they say um, we, I, they formed the Injustice game to fight justice, the concept, not the team. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, duh. Hence. Oh, thus the name Injustice. Ah, ha, ha. It's like the villain saying, like, you know, we're evil and we love it. <laughs> exactly. Great stuff. Well, when, if, you, if this is the same people that probably called themselves the Legion of Doom, so you can't yeah. mock them too much. Um, let's see. And, of course, the idea of the laser messing up the storms was later reused in Superman 3, which is also interesting, although I'm thinking they stole that from this rather than the other way around. There's no way to check for sure. 
Well, no, it, like, exactly. they, I mean, it's, they, they can reuse something like Dr. Octopus using satellites in space to change the weather for, of Earth and holding Earth hostage doing so. They wouldn't do oh, that. <laughs> yeah, no, they wouldn't do that. Especially in the storyline currently being concluded right now. <laughs> Never! We're not which, which, which the by the way, they kept on saying blackmail, blackmail, blackmail. I kept on saying, that's extortion. That's extortion. Like maybe, maybe maybe I got my definitions wrong, but isn't blackmail like pay me oh, this right. money or I'm or I'm gonna like tell this person what you did? Extortion yeah, exactly. is pay me this money or I'm gonna beat you up or destroy your planet. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, whatever. What was they're, the they're stand s- doing? Th- these guys are super smart. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and then beyond that, I really don't have much. And, and blackmailing the Hardys for something different each week. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have much about the rest of it. It's a pretty pat ending. I don't know how Spider-Man was able to come down from the space station on one thing of web. But, you know, it's the 70s. Maybe he could do that. Um, it is pretty interesting to see webbing, because I'm not used to it anymore, of seeing webbing that doesn't have the cool knots and stuff on it that McFarlane started. Oh, like the web net webbing? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention the whole uh, spider, the, the webbing getting steel hard with heat. Um, and how it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah, no. no <laughs> not at all. But, uh, yeah, overall, I thought this was a pretty entertaining book that if you don't think about it and you're not on a podcast talking about it, you'd be entertained by it. So I would recommend it to any, to people. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, Josh, what about you? Okay, um... I don't hate this story. I really don't, but I have a lot of problems with it. First of all, <laughs> okay. like, this thing is historically significant, really historically significant. Like, this is, nowadays, these type of crossovers and stuff happen all the time, and I understand that when this came out, this was a big deal. And, like, I hear stories about people who were around back then who read this from cover to cover because of how awesome it was. It has not aged well. It's very... <laughs> and I'm glad it came out, but it is not age. Well, first of all, one of my problems with it, which isn't, it's partially this book's fault, but it's also partially the fault of, like, the stuff that fallen before it. This story rests on the, like, it it rests on the fact that these two characters not only exist in the same universe, but they've always existed in the same universe. Everyone's like, oh, yes, Perry White and Morgan Edge, of course we've heard of each other, and of course, you know, we deal with each other all the time. It's an Yes, oh, of, oh, Superman, yes, I've always heard about him. For some reason, he didn't show up when Galactus, you know, almost killed us all. And uh, for some and for some reason, the Avengers and, you know, are, are not going to show up when uh, the Anti-Monitor attacks in a few years. And just, it, of course not. The, and that's what I hate about DC and Marvel crossovers is, like, we're supposed to pretend for that one story that they're a shared universe, but then, like... I get that Superman's not going to show up when, like, you know, the, the burglar returns and kidnaps Aunt May, but for a big deal, like, Civil War, the Infinity Gauntlet, like, they're supposed to exist in the same universe, and then they go back to that idea in other stories. Um, I know that in the 90s, that they, there was the idea that they were in separate dimensions or realities, which I, I kind of like that a little better. Or maybe, you know, DC can't do this because Marvel would sue them, but saying that, like, Marvel is one of the multiverses or something... You know, who knows? Um, exactly. Yeah, I, find, I thought that was better and made more sense. Yeah. Lex Luthor was absolutely ridiculous in this, and um, 
I've read, you know, pre-Crisis Lex. I've read a lot of pre-Crisis Lex. I've read a lot of Silver Age stuff. I've read some Golden Age. I've even read some of the Bronze Age stuff with Lexor and everything else. I don't remember it always being like this, but this is absolutely... Maybe because it isn't the Silver Age, like, I expect it to be less ridiculous, because in the Silver Age he did stuff like this all the time, but he, how did he build this thing, this giant Megazord, without people knowing? And then, like, this, like, underwater, like, you know, octopus, like, spider thing, like, where is he getting this material? Like, these are questions that I'm asking myself, and again, it's the 70s, which is what I mean when I say this story hasn't aged well. I guess we accepted that more back then. And then his old destroy the world thing, which I guess he could have gone. I, I don't know if Lexor existed at this point because he had another like in the seventies and eighties. He had another planet called Lexor where he had like a wife and a child and like a group of people that worshipped him that he could go to like anytime he wanted. <laughs> yes, that was that was actually from the sixties, uh, the Silver Age. So yes, Lexor Lexor was around by this point. Holy crap! Wow, I never knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he wants to blow up the world for no reason and stuff. And, like, his epidermis thing, and Lex was ridiculous in this. Um, (laughs) My other problem with this was, and I made reference to this during the recap, Spider-Man is shown up, like, every single step of the way by Superman. (laughs) There's, like, they're not on equal footing. Like, Spider-Man's like, ooh, he broke my hand when he shook it. I better hide my hand so he doesn't see it. Oh, you know, I oh I have an idea. Let's get into this thing this way. I have an idea. How about I break down the wall and like and every, which that's fine because you have to. Superman is the superior, you know, like character in terms of power sets, and you have to give him his chance to shine. But it's not balanced out by like you know Spider Man's spider sense coming in handy where Superman couldn't do something or his agility or. <laughs> That, yeah. that that was a big problem to me. He basically like played the role of like, you know, bumbling sidekick and it's like, how did Marvel allow this? Because from what <laughs> and um there was a lot of problems like getting this thing made because like Marvel and DC like who was I I I've heard I don't know the whole story, but I know that like the making of this was a very, very, very complicated like flash in the pan thing. So, so I, I do wonder how that was allowed. Uh, Spider-Man also gives away his secret identity at the end. He's like, huh, it's a coincidence that they kidnap my girl, which I'm saying with an earshot of, like, everyone, including the girls and the villains. Like, if, if yeah. you go to that page. Totally. Um, but, otherwise, it's... I, I like the... I, you know, I like Ross... I like the Ross Andrew art, and I like Conway. It's... The biggest problem that this thing has is it's got a great legacy, but it is dated. Oh, Lord, is this thing dated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. I like how they um, have an editor's note for what a tsunami is, which is kind of funny. <laughs> and it's a super tidal wave. <laughs> a super tidal wave. Isn't it just the name of a tidal wave, uh, but in the like the Pacific or something? I don't think there's actually any sort of like uh, technical adjective for things in in the terms of super. <laughs> <laughs> Except, yeah, except for Superman. Yeah, I'm pretty. Uh, but I was pretty. I was always under the assumption like a tsunami was a tidal wave, but that's what they call them on the West Coast. Like instead of a instead of a hurricane, they call them like a monsoon or something, or something like that. Or be like I don't seeing, know. That would be like seeing an editor's you note know, for like thunderstorm, and it's like thunderstorm, a rainstorm with lightning. <laughs> 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 Also created by with thunder, yay! 
Um, did you have more? Uh, that, pre- that pretty much sums it up. I sprinkled other stuff throughout the recaps. <laughs> All right. Uh, Don, about you? Um, well, I actually have never read this before, this, uh, this podcast. Um, not because not I didn't want to, but like I just never got around to it. So like reading this, I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the stuff that bothered Josh never really even occurred to me. Um, I'm not... I'm, because it is the Bronze Age, I let a lot of things go. Like I, I don't really ask, uh, how where did where did uh, Lex buy uh, or make, invent the uh, robot? Because it's not really meant to be put into that much thought. It's sort of like things that can happen that, that can then be crazy, but like the people's personas and stuff can at least be at least relatable or believable. Although I do like the design of the robot. Actually, it's not like uh, it's not like Herbie or it's not like a you know like like a Voltron or anything like that. It is kind of unique. Um. And I like the fact that you get you get the individual uh, adventures of Superman and Spider-Man, and they feel like Superman and Spider-Man issues of that era, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. I knew S- Superman in the 70s worked at a news station. Um, I didn't know Morgan Edge was his boss. My understanding of Morgan Edge, and this is purely off of like the media, I've never read him in the comics, although I knew he, was, he came from the comics. I thought Morgan Edge was sort of a crime boss, but what is he doing here in the comic? Can you explain that for me? Okay, um... Basically, when he was first introduced, this is going to be some of that okay. <laughs> Bronze Age, Silver Age craziness. Uh, he was first introduced in the early 70s when uh, Jack Kirby started over at DC. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, the head of a crime organization called Intergang. And it turns out that he was actually a clone um, <laughs> of the real Morgan Edge, created by these two guys um, Mokari and I can't think of the other, the other one's name Simeon and Mokari uh, who created him as a clone under the orders of Darkseid uh-huh. and, um, and I'm thinking it was to just to get a, some, a hold of crime in, on Earth and eventually the real Morgan Edge came back and with the help of Jimmy Olsen and Superman, they were able to defeat the clone. And Jimmy and the newsboys over in the Jimmy Olsen book had already taken care of the Simeon and Mokari and all of Darkseid's plans. And so the real Morgan Edge just took back his life back over from where the clone had left off. And so now he's a good guy, and he runs WGBS, which had bought the Daily Planet, so now Perry White and Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane and Clark Kent all work for him, and he upgraded Clark to a newscaster. Okay, uh, where's Perry in this? Is he like Perry? Perry's the editor of the Daily Planet, but like I said, the Planet is owned by WGBS, so he's basically he's in charge of the Planet part, but he's kind of second in command because Morgan Edge is his boss. The diabolical fiend. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> So that was interesting seeing him there. Yeah, it's completely different than if you listen to the uh, Crisis to Crisis show. Mm-hmm. That version of Morgan Edge is mostly if the clone stuff is actually the real Morgan Edge over there. So he he's a bad guy post Crisis, but in the Bronze Age, after you got through the clone stuff, he was a good guy. We had our own little clone saga. Uh, it just didn't get as much press. I can I imagine that must have irritated a lot of it fans. Uh, it irritated people having to do a podcast about it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> like all of us. 
Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting seeing him here. Um, and I thought it was interesting because, you know, if you compare the two uh, stories, like uh, the individual prologues, like Spider-Man is pretty, if you read this, to, if I gave this to a new fan today, like, I think people could recognize it. You know, Spider-Man works at the Daily Bugle with under J.J. Jimison. He's dating Mary Jane. It's pretty recognizable, you know, years later. Whereas Superman, you have the main characters, but you don't have the planet in this issue or you don't have Perry White. So it's kind of like, what the heck? But I, thought, I, liked, I, liked the, I liked the fact that they're taking their status quos from the, uh, the here and now. Kind of like what Marvel and DC did where Superman had long hair and uh, Peter was actually Ben Riley, but he said, call me Peter anyway to not hurt anybody's feelings. Um, and even <laughs> and even Lex Luthor. I mean, I like seeing in the comics that Lex Luthor is wearing his Super Friends costume. I think that's really cool with like the flared collar and the purple and green. Um, it's it's a lot of the Nightwing. The night, yeah, the Nightwing collar. <laughs> yes, it's a lot of fun. Um, now I do think that Josh is right in that when you kind of like take a step back, Spider Man does get a bit of a short trip because. He is kind of he is inadvertently showing up. It's not explicit in the in the in the uh, the issue, but it is like you know when you kind of see it for what it is. That is what, it's what hap- what's happening. But because they didn't make a big deal out of it, like today, like that would be the, the deliberate and like the whole point would be Spider Man isn't Spider Man such a joke? But back then, because they didn't actually mean mean for that to happen, it's just you know oh it's a shame, but you know whatever. It, it doesn't really it doesn't really affect me all that much. Um, I think the arts obviously the arts are great all around. Uh, I mean, Ross Andrew really isn't my favorite Spider-Man artist. I, I mean, I, I respect what he's done uh, towards the character and for comics in general, because obviously he worked on DC and Batman and Superman. But, I mean, in comparison to what we had during, the, like, the, like, the Silver Age and the Bronze, going into the Bronze Age and Spider-Man, I mean, we were, we were coming off of, like, Gil Kane and John Romita Sr., some really, really dynamic stuff. And to me, Ross Andrew really did kind of seem like really safe vanilla artwork where... He made Peter Parker look even more handsome than I think he was meant to be. I mean, but that being said, I mean, like, I mean, I don't, I don't dislike the guy. I mean, I, I got, I, I respect him greatly after I read his entire run. So, him being the artist here does make sense. But I, those, those splashes of Neil Adams and John Romita Senior are like, you know, they, 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 they kind of put the sugar in, in the this crossover coffee that we have here. Um, and, <laughs> nice way to put it. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's just, it's just fun, mad science, and, you know, the heroes being heroes, and, you know, the, the girls. I like the fact that, again, contrasting Spider-Man and Superman, Peter and Mary Jane are very modern. With their, with their oh, you know, now they're dated, but Mary Jane's wearing, well, yeah. they're wearing boots and sweaters and stuff. But Superman no and bottoms. Lois, I mean, Clark still looks like that kind of 50s newsman kind of thing, even if it is the 70s, and he, the characters are in the 70s. So it's... It's on the on on their on its own. This issue is fun. It's interesting as a period piece because you kind of kind of see where things are. You kind of see like the state comics we're in. And to me, I think that this issue should be a lot more well regarded and famous than it already is. I mean, people, yeah, this is iconic, but I think this should be sort of a touchstone of where comics could go. And I don't think it really is in terms of like where when you talk about comic book history, I feel this should be a lot more a lot bigger than than I feel it is at least. And um, I really enjoyed it. Well, sweet. Um, I did find out that a couple. Uh, this has actually been referenced in continuity, mostly on the Marvel side in the past. Uh, apparently, there's a some. I think it was C- Secret Wars has uh, uses one of the panels of where Superman's about to punch Spider-Man, but stops and he gets hit by the wind instead. All you see is Superman's arms. You really can't tell, but they 
use that in what? that book. <laughs> yeah. Secret Wars? I think it's Secret Wars. It might be something else. It might be one of the other Secret yeah, Wars. Yeah, because I, 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 I have Secret again. Wars, and th- th- that, that, that's not in there. And, unless I've missed it all this time. Wait a minute. Let me see. Uh, let's see. Spider-Man. Da, 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 da. Yeah, no offense to the people who love this story, but there's no way that this story is canon. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. These, these people uh, can't... Heck, like, it's not canon on the very basis that, like, the this version of, like, Superman and Lois doesn't even exist anymore. Okay, hold on, I'm sorry. It wasn't Secret Wars. I apparently am stupid. It was What If number one. And Owatu to the Watcher shows glimpses of the various universes, and among them shows Spider-Man about to receive a punch from Superman, showing his sleeve and fist only. He even poses the question as to whether or not the event happened in the mainstream continuum or an alternate reality. They also had something about it in Avengers Forever number 8, uh, which was that miniseries that Kurt Busiek did with uh, Carlos Pacheco. And there's a scene where they show Dr. Octopus carrying Lex Luthor out of prison, which obviously <laughs> which obviously works because Lex is just a bald guy in prison in the prison uniform, so I guess it doesn't look too Horrible. much like Lex to first DC to be, hey, that's Luthor, pay us money. <laughs> so Money, please. Exactly. So the, apparently those are the only ones I've found. Uh, oh, there's a nice touch in the last page in the epilogue where um... – it's kind of subtle, but I like the fact that Mary Jane has both Clark and Peter on each arm. Just because that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's totally a Mary Jane's character. I thought it was pretty nice. Yeah, she's a player that way. She is. But yeah, I could totally, yeah, that totally is cool. And, of course, the way, I don't know if the original, because I don't have it pulled up right now, has it colored that way, but her hands are almost covered by the colors. But Blue and yellow. Oh, I, here's one thing that we, we kind of alluded to in the synopsis. Since when is Dr. Octopus blind without his glasses? I've read I've that read the first like <laughs> Yeah, I've read, I've read like the first two hundred odd episodes or issues of Spider Man. That's never occurred. <laughs> Alright, well also let me ask you guys this one, uh, because I'm not as well versed on Spider Man. Now I know by this point that um Green Goblin had been one of his biggest villains because of killing Gwen Stacy, but that he's supposed to be dead. Was Doc Ock supposed to be Superman or Superman Spider Man's biggest villain at this point? Yeah, pretty much. I, I'd say that, that, that that's fair. And he, even across the board, like, Green Goblin was like... Green Goblin was, the, was, was a novelty villain. Like, he, well, okay, no, not novelty, but, like, he killed Gwen Stacy, which, like, made things step up. But he was, like, he was on a different, like, level than the other villains. Dr. Octopus was a lot more classic, where if there was a villain you wanted to see, it was him. Goblin was a wild card, but, um... Like at the at the time before and after, Doctor Octopus was a lot more of um. In fact, another thing, but it wasn't Doctor Octopus supposed to be dead around this time too. <laughs> By way no, of no, no. He, he 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 came back right after the Brant Leeds wedding, so so this was right on time. Um, oh, that's right, that's right. Jared said that. Yeah, no, I think I'd say that Doc Ock was the iconic Spider-Man villain up until after the Clone Saga, when like they reckon that Norman was involved in everything that like ever happened ever. But, <laughs> I mean, Norman would, would probably be, like, the deadliest villain or something, but, like, if you were to draw, like, a poster of Spider-Man or something in the 70s or 80s, he'd probably be fighting Doc Ock. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I just knew that, um, what's his name, Green Goblin was one of the bigger ones, but that didn't even come up until, like you said, after the Clone Saga, right? So... Well, you had it was you had how many years without a Green Goblin story? Um, like three to nineteen ninety six, so like twenty three. Uh, so wow. Well, even even Bart Hamilton though, that was like issue like you know one eighty. That well, yeah, because uh, the Harry stuff was a year after after Norman died. And the Bart yeah. Hamilton stuff wasn't too soon after. There's over like a hundred issues where like, well, heck, let's see. Issue like 180 of Amazing, Bart Hamilton, Green Goblin. The next time Harry becomes the Green Goblin, it's like the McFarlane run. Sorry, Superman fans, we're really nerdy. <laughs> no, 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 that's why I had you guys on the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't I, um, I, I, I don't even know if this, well, was was Inferno the 80s still? I mean, either way, like, for, for, for most... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so like, for almost the whole thing of the 80s, but not the whole thing, you didn't. you had no Green Goblin stories. And even when you okay. did, it's like Harry dressing up as the Green Goblin and like wimping out at the end. Oh, punk. Okay, and uh, uh, let's see, what's his name? Uh, Harry wasn't in this. Is he still around at this point? Um, he, he and Liz Allen are are dating. He's back from rehab, acting all buggy eyed. Uh, depending on depending on when this was done, like because. I don't know what issue of Amazing this corresponds to, but because, like, Betty and Ned are on their working honeymoon, it's somewhere between 156 and 182. So Harry was... I mean, he was... he. There was hints that he was going to relapse in the Goblin stuff, but he was hanging out with Flash Thompson, they were roommates, and he's dating Liz Allen. Okay. Yeah, it came out the same month, apparently, as... Amazing 155. Oh wow! Wonderful. Oh, it's this is uh, interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, why did the, you uh, put one hundred fifty-six as the, as the as the starting point, Josh? What happens with that? Because Betty and Ned reference their working honeymoon, and they they get married in one fifty-six. Huh. And well, also, you know what? And also, that's when Doc Ock returns too, from like well, back from the dead. Well, I'm going to play. Or say that it might be a little off because I'm using Mike's Amazing World of well, mostly not just DC Comics anymore, but comics, and his on sale date put it at January second, and puts the Amazing Spider-Man issue at uh, the 13th. But it's also possible with a book like this that it could have come out either later or before, and he's just not sure, so he threw a date up there. I could buy that it so, came out early. Yeah, if, plus being kind of fast and loose with continuity, it's a big book, so they can kind of fudge it a little bit. Yeah. But, And, you know, the way deadlines run, we're running sometimes, it's completely possible that the wedding was supposed to have already happened or something, too. Well, they were engaged forever. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they really were. Yeah, they, didn't they get engaged way back in the Stan and Steve days? He proposed in the Stan and Steve days, and she accepted like a mere like few issues in the John Romita's run. And then, wow. like Yeah, and then they just like appeared in the background for a while. And, and the joke was that that we made is that they were waiting to get more friends to invite to their wedding before they actually <laughs> had a wedding. And then they realized they had no friends. So come the day of their wedding, like the 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 wedding party is basically like you know. Betty's ex's ex and like his ex's friends. That's right. You guys just talked about that on on Crawl Space. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good stuff. 
Well, um, I really don't have anything else to say. Uh, did anyone else have any last words? Or I know there's um, a, I don't know if it's a sequel, but I know there's another Superman Spider-Man crossover. Who's in that one? Yes, uh, the bad guys are Doctor Doom and uh, Parasite, with appearances by the Hulk and Wonder Woman. There might even be some more villains. I don't remember. But it's yeah, so when... ridiculous to imagine these people being in the same universe because <laughs> it makes no sense. Yeah, and they're like, "Geez, Wonder Woman's been operating in New York. I wonder why I never run into her." Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> because at that point she had been, but no one from Marvel had ever run into her. It's amazing how that happens. Oh, is, what a is that when Wonder Woman like was depowered? No, she was. That was early seventies. I don't know. The week she was depowered. On. Yeah. And feminist attack Daniel Danny O'Neill's house. Yes, good lord. All right, and we're going to end that there. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Josh and Don for coming on to the show. Again, if you enjoyed their dulcet tones, you can find Josh at Bertone's Beetle Bonanza. You can find Don at the Batman Universe podcast and Another Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. And you can find both of them at the Spider-Man Crawl Space and Clone Saga Chronicles. You'll find links to all of those podcasts in the show notes at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Next up is J. David Weeder with today's installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Hello everyone, it's J. David Weeder with another thrilling installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age, where I pick a randomly selected Superboy story. This time around, I have Superboy number 177, cover dated September 1971. You would have found this on stands on July 6th, 1971. It is another 48-pager for 25 cents. This time around, we're looking at the first story, which is Our Trader Super Sun a 15-page whopper written by Leo Dorfman, penciled by Bob Brown, inked by Murphy Anderson. And starting with the cover, which is actually a Dick Giordano cover, uh, the cover is a fairly stark white background with Ma and Pa Kent behind bars with a lone police officer guarding them. Superboy looks fairly irked about what's going on as the parents call out, We're innocent. What kind of son would put his own parents in jail? And the story opens on Earth Day which is basically Clark's birthday, the day he landed on the planet, and the Kents took him in, raised them as their own son. And as he's about to blow out the candles on the cake, he gets an alert from his secret communication network, and Clark thinks these emergencies don't leave him a moment's peace. But he rushes off anyway, and gets the alert that a mothball fleet mysteriously heading out to sea without a crew aboard. So the Navy requests that Superboy investigates at once. So Clark switches into his gear, flies out to the ocean, and he sees, indeed, a fleet of Navy boats floating away. And as he gets close, they start firing on him. Clark freezes up the entire boats with his freeze breath, and then goes in to investigate. And as he's looking around, he gets a message from a new enemy who appears on a view screen with a very large bulbous head, a pair of odd eyes, pointed ears, 
and of course a spacey outfit in green and purple. This is Cerebron, telling Superboy that compared to Cerebron's titanic intellect, he is a mental pygmy. He planned to use this fleet to conquer the world, and Superboy interfered. Because he dared hinder him, Superboy must pay for his insolence. Superboy more or less rolls his eyes and goes about dragging the fleet on a sheet of ice back to port. The next morning, back in Smallville, Martha is worried because Clark did not come home the night before. And Jonathan assures her he's probably on some super mission and tells Martha to watch the store while he makes some deliveries of some food. Just then, the police and Superboy arrive. Superboy accuses the Kents of selling contaminated food and tells the police to arrest them. Back at the police station, it's no gag. The food is actually contaminated with a deadly bacteria, so the Kents are taken in and put in jail, and both are kind of miffed. How could, how could Superboy do this to them? Superboy heads back home and begins emptying out all of his sentimental stuff, like his Superboy robots, his electronic equipment, and his trophies from other worlds. He buries them in the ground, and with quick-drying cement, closes up the tunnel that leads from the Kent house to a clearing. No sooner has he done that than Cerberon and a minion arrive. Investigating the place, Cerberon scans it and sees a trail of radiation showing that Superboy was there not too long ago. Cerberon uses a pulse ray key, which can open any lock ever made, enters the house, and looks around. He is sure that the Kents are Superboy's parents, but clearly not. But his minion tells Cerberon that perhaps Superboy was gathering more evidence. Cerberon admits, yeah, you might be right, and calls the minion Kroll. So Cerberon and and Kroll begin doing some more investigation. Meanwhile, Clark Kent is hanging out at the the Lang house, where he's going to be staying while his parents are, well, in jail. Lana tears down a Superboy poster and says, He used to be my idol, but not anymore. Not after the cruel way he treated the Kents. And to think, Lana once thought Clark was secretly Superboy. Lana's made a basket for Clark's parents and asks him, Do you want to go visit them? But Clark says no, because, well, the police might get suspicious about him, too. So Lana chides Clark for being just, well, shallow. Meanwhile, changing back into Superboy... He embarks on a vital mission, taking more equipment. He's basically hiding his super weapons and trophies in the secret cache that he established in Superboy number 109, which is in a crater on an asteroid. So he's stashing stuff just as Cerberon shows up in a flying ship, with with Kroll at the wheel. They have followed the trail of radiation. Seeing that his enemy has caught up with him, Superboy self-destructs the asteroid, taking the small orb. Superboy decides to make an undersea base next. Cerberon finds him under the sea, following a trail of radiation. You seeing a theme here? And for days they keep doing this, Superboy will make a base. One, of course, is in an Arctic iceberg, and yet Cerberon keeps finding him. Finally, Superboy makes a base within a junkyard, an old auto yard. And every time Superboy tries to chase Cerberon, the ship disappears. And when Cerberon comes in, in invisible form, it trips an alarm, which Superboy takes the advantage, locking Cerberon in. So they're chasing each other around. Superboy manages to find Cerberon's invisible ship and heat up the metal exterior to the point that Cerberon and Kroll both surrender. And as Superboy approaches Cerberon, he notices that Cerberon's face is perspiring from the heat, but the brow isn't even moist. Using his X-ray vision, he realizes Cerberon is not what he seems, and he yanks the big cranium off of this figure to find out underneath is Lex Luthor, the person who hates Superboy most. 
because he made him bald when Superboy used his super breath to blow out a fire. The chemical fumes on his head made his hair fall out. And of course, this was the latest scheme. This was actually a brain power amplifier. The, the fleet was charged with radiation, allowing Luthor to track Superboy. So, with Lux Luthor and Kroll taken into custody, Superboy admits it was him that planted the contaminated food on the Kents with the full knowledge of the police. Because with the Kents in protective custody, he was able to go about making his citadels and draw attention from them. Basically, he was protecting his parents. Ah. He reunites with his parents, Jonathan and Martha, who realize that Superboy did what he did to save their lives. And Superboy begins moving all of his stuff back into the Kent household and tells his parents, I don't need a super fortress. Oh, so you think, Superboy. And we get an image saying, someday when you're Superman, you will have a mighty fortress in a distant Arctic. So let's let's start going through this book, uh, getting into the issue. Page one, Superboy's Earth Day. And as I was reading a cross-section of, of stories for the doing this segment, this one stood out because it's not the, the only time we see the Earth Day. It seems like it happens all the time. But mainly because what stood out about Earth Day is that it is February 29th. And it seems like for the number of Earth Day or birthday incidents that we're going to see, Leap Year came around a lot. Uh, page four, our first look at Cerberon, who is, of course, Lex Luthor, but... Cerberon looks like a conehead, like Dan Aykroyd conehead, with Elton John glasses and Spock ears. I, I don't know I don't know why Luthor decided to design a look like this. Why couldn't he just have the brain amplifier and, and be Luthor? And in fact, I don't know that that fits. If Luthor really does hate Superboy as much as we're led to believe, wouldn't he want Superboy to know that Luthor was the one that defeated him? Page 5, Jonathan and Martha are getting arrested, and Martha almost admits that Superboy is their son. This is rather awkward. And of course, in the next panel, Martha's like, Son, what kind of son would put his parents in jail? We treated him like our own flesh and blood. And of course, on page 6, continuing that same scene, Jonathan is kind of kind of the stronger of the two, saying maybe Superboy had his reasons. If we did do something wrong, it would be his duty to arrest us. Um, the whole plan is a little wonky. Uh, I understand why he was doing it. I understand the thought process. It's still just a little bit goofy. But it leads to a fun moment next when we kind of get the filling in of the secret room and the secret tunnel. And then Cerberon and Kroll show up like a couple of gangsters on page 7. They have a pulse ray key that can open any lock ever made. Dude, they make lock picks. I know it's the 1970s, but lock picks were pretty prevalent. There were locksmiths. There must be lock picks. Although it does make sense that Kroll, even though he's kind of a throwaway minion points out that he could have been gathering more evidence against the Kents. Convenient, that's very convenient that Kroll would think of that, and throw Luthor slash Cerberon off the tail, off the trail. Um, page 9, the crater on the asteroid on page 9, I referenced Superboy number 109, which was, uh, just as a side note, kind of a odd story involving another super dog. This is the first time it's mentioned, but it's implied very heavily, not it looks like Superboy's had this for a while. Because the Bizarro duplicating machine is there, there is a piece of the, the rocket ship and Lex Luthor's hair. So, I mean, that's an interesting tie-back that Lex Luthor's hair is in there, and Lex Luthor is angry because of that. But this is a predecessor to the Fortress of Solitude. There is apparently a small globe that he keeps moving stuff around with. Really, a lot of the story was Cerberon slash Luthor chasing Clark. It felt like a real Roadrunner and Wily e. Coyote story, which was fun. But 
the main note that I want to get to is really when we get to the end of the story, it's revealed that it's Luthor. And as I mentioned, why would you dress yourself up like that? But that's how Luthor rolls. But we get to page 15, where Clark is explaining to Lana that, you know, we didn't want the Kents caught. We were doing this to protect the Kents. Uh, dude, you're pretty much giving away your secret identity. Why would Cerberon suspect that the Kents are your parents if they weren't your parents? So, really, this is where what was kind of a fun story, which, oh, cool, Luthor's in it, really, it fell apart. It just completely fell apart right there because Lana should completely realize, look, this connection's pretty obvious, Clark. You, you don't have to lie to kick it with me. So, I mean, <laughs> I hate when stories fall apart right at the last page, but it happens, and this is one of them. I do like that we do get kind of a hint towards Clark's future, that he is starting to realize that he, he needs a fortress, but he says, I don't need a super fortress. I want to tie you back to page 9 once again in the cachet I talked about. He's had that for a while. He had it for a while in Superboy number 109, which was back in the day. So, once again, we're contradicting. Eh, they can't all be winners, folks. With that, I am actually going to hand you back to Mr. Charlie Niemeyer so we can wrap up this episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I'm J. David Weeder. I appreciate you listening. Thank you, David. And that's going to wrap things up for today. On behalf of David and myself, I'd like to thank you for downloading this episode. I hope all of our American citizens have a happy Independence Day. I hope everyone in Canada had a happy Canadian or Canada Day. Sorry. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to email the show at superbronze1970 at gmail.com. And please, leave a comment for the show on iTunes. The more comments we get, the higher the visibility on iTunes. So please join us again in just two weeks when I cover one of Superman's team-ups with July's other superhero movie star, The Batman. And of course, David will bring another Superboy adventure. So we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Superman of the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Meyer. The home of the show is at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will find postings for this show, as well as many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you all for listening, and God bless. Mm-hmm.